This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 511, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 491 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Felix Manares. Now, Felix is a veteran FDNY firefighter, a strength conditioning coach at The Rock, which is FDNY's training facility, and also one of the founding members of FDNY Jiu-Jitsu. So we discuss a host of topics from his own journey into the fire service, diversity, the recruits that he's seeing, preparing for a profession like this, setting strength and conditioning standards, jiu-jitsu, and so much more. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment and go to whichever app you listen to this on. Hit subscribe, leave feedback, and most importantly, leave a rating. Every five-star rating from each and every one of you helps elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find, and that's the reason for it. And this is a free library of almost 500 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you pay it forward and share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Felix Manares. Enjoy. Felix, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Well, thank you for the invite. Uh, this is pr- pretty amazing. So I'm, I'm going to say thank you as well up front to Miguel, um, who will be coming on eventually now that he's, I think, about to, to finally transition out of the Marines. Um, so let's begin with that. How, how were you introduced to Miguel? Uh, well, I uh, was put in contact with uh, Everest, which is a, a PR individual. And uh, he took interest uh, to the FDNY grappling team, which I'm a chair member of. And we recently came back from a competition, uh, the US World Police and Fire Games. And this was back in uh, June, June 18th. The, the event itself ran for, I think about 10 days. It's just a, uh, Firemen in New York, uh, I'm sorry, firemen and police officers from everywhere. Um, they invite them. It actually started in uh, in California. So it was just the West Coast departments. They just batted it out like grudge match. But they do everything from badminton to dodgeball to basketball, baseball. Uh, a few years ago, they started Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And uh, this year in particular, they had the gi. I'm not sure if you... Uh, know about jiu-jitsu but they they have a, a no-gi version which is just t-shirts and shorts and then they have the gi version which is the komodo that you put on and uh is on a scoring system and a submission uh pretty much but we were at that event um myself and three other individuals we all medaled we all placed and um one of the guys in the team is very close friends with Everest and Everest was like, Hey, if you guys need uh, somebody to represent you, maybe get you some sponsors, get you some free stuff. And the brand FDNY is a monster brand. Um, 
so everyone wants to align themselves with that. Uh, our grappling team is actually sanctioned by the FDNY, so we have permission to use FDNY. So we just started, we're two years in as a society, and uh, through Everest, he put us in contact with Amp Human, and that's where this connection happened. Long story short. Beautiful. No, that's fantastic. I actually was chat- chatting to uh, one of your guys from the FDMW uh, Barbell Club the other day as well. They, they've got oh, some yeah. exciting Ooh. stuff on the on the horizon. Um, I think it's Roberto. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll be uh, you know talking to him more, and um, I'm actually trying to help with with the the sponsorship for their event. I think they're trying to get a CrossFit event off the ground, and I'm gonna yes. send some books over so they can have it for all the volunteers. So. That'd be oh, uh, fantastic. Yeah, I think that's going to be September this year. Uh, they trying to work things out. Um, again, the FDNY brand and the, their legal department are, um, they're very proficient at their job. <laughs> <laughs> that's the nicest way I could put it. Um, but there's a lot of red tape and uh, it's a huge uphill battle for those guys. Uh I do so much myself because I'm a huge, uh, well, I'm into CrossFit. I'm a CrossFit quote-unquote athlete, uh, um, novice, obviously. But uh, I try to help those guys with that event uh, as well. Beautiful. Well, we'll we'll get into that as well because I know strength and conditioning is a big part of what you do. Um, you talk about jiu-jitsu. I uh, I've done it for for several years, but very intermittently. So I'm finally back in in the gym again, being consistent for probably the first time. Um, so yeah, I I I do gi and no gi as well. So it's a uh, it's, oh, okay. it's an incredible thing. So with your story though, starting at the very beginning, um, tell me where you were born, and then tell me um, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay, I was born in uh, New York, in Manhattan, New York, St. Luke's Hospital to be exact. Back then, St. Luke's was an all-women hospital. Uh, I just found that to be an interesting part. Um, my parents were very humble beginnings. They cleaned office buildings. Uh, my dad was a provider. Um, that being said, he wasn't present because he was working two jobs for as long as I I, I could remember. Um, we never needed anything. Like, he was so good that, you know, we always had the basics. I always wanted everything. And as a kid, you want everything in the world. But um, but because he worked Monday to Friday from 6 in the morning to midnight, and it was just rinse and repeat for 16, 17 years, um, he was never there as a uh, father figure, per se. So my mom took that role in. She was also working uh, as cleaning office buildings. I have an older sister, five years older than me, and I have a younger brother, 11 years. So he was kind of the whoopsie uh, part. Hopefully he doesn't take that too personal, but 11-year gap, they weren't planning for that, and it just happened. Um, once he was born, uh, she stopped working. She was a full-time uh, uh, housewife. And uh, that's when we moved to the Bronx in 91. They purchased a home. Uh, back then, there was this huge development in the South Bronx. Because back then, uh, in the 90s, very early 90s, the Bronx was pretty much burned down buildings, and it was a, it was a war zone. So the, the Bronx uh, borough president created um, this foundation that started building homes. You know, it was a light construction, you know, one-family home 
where they just took over all the landfills in the Bronx and just built homes. My mom caught wind of it. A couple of her friends purchased homes, and they purchased one. Then I moved to the Bronx uh, in 91, and I've been here ever since. Now, just to, to make sure I understood that right, they built homes on top of the landfills? Well, they, I mean, obviously, they, they leveled things out, and, but there were just... There was just empty land everywhere in the Bronx, uh, where there used to be um, H-type buildings and and uh, old law tenements. All that burned down. They leveled everything off. They just purchased the land and just built uh, single-family homes on top of that. So there's a few a few blocks in the South Bronx radius uh, that has single-family homes, attached, semi-attached homes, and it's just it goes blocks long and uh, is meant for single families looking to build their credit and uh, own a home, per se. Live the, the dream. Yeah, <laughs> the American dream that used to just be a home in a little bit of land and then became Winnebago's and jet skis. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, with that, so one one thing that, that I always try and kind of ask, um, because whether it's military, police, fire, you know, a lot of us can at times struggle with the, the mental health side and we focus so much on oh it's what you see and I, and I disagree there's, I think there's an element of our childhood that definitely adds a lot of weight before we ever pin a badge on our chest so you mentioned with your dad being away for all for all the the right reasons um, but that still takes away a parent when, when you look back were there any elements of your childhood that you would consider were you know tougher times oh I mean yeah I being in a situation now as a uh, as a father, I have a 15 month old, and I waited very long. Uh, I I was in my 40s. I, I'm 44 now, so I wouldn't say I'm, I was 40 when I decided to settle down and get married, and 41, uh, 42 when I had my first kid. Um, that because of what I experienced as a child. I'm not gonna you know demonize my dad, but kind of understanding where I am now and how selfish I was in my 20s and 30s with my time and my life and didn't want to make the same mistakes that he did uh, and my uncles and, you know, we could go into the dynamics of the Hispanic uh, family stuff, which is kind of weird to me. But um, he would spend his pastime after his work week and he would hang out with his friends and drink until he can't walk and, you know, be a little belligerent and unhappy with the situation he's in. And he expressed that only in his, uh, in his rage and his drunk. He wasn't, uh, any, he wasn't physical towards me, uh, or anyone else. Um, but he just, that was his vent. He, he worked so much and he had a little bit of rest and it was more of a routine for him. So he did it, but he wasn't there. Um, he didn't take me to, Little League, and my mom did all that, but she would then say, hey, listen, the park is only three blocks away. You could walk there. You're fine. So I did everything pretty much on my own, and I was a quote-unquote scrub because I didn't really have anybody to show me how to catch a ball, hit a ball. So I was just there to, uh, they were utilizing that as a babysitter so that my mom could have her free time, and my dad was working, and the weekends he would hang out with his friends, and if not, he would just stay on the couch and watch soccer because he's a, a huge soccer fan. Um, and uh, But he didn't really take us anywhere. 
didn't have the energy or the time to do that uh, because all he was doing was working, collecting a paycheck and, and trying to provide. My mom also being unhappy in the situation she was in, she wasn't really focused on kind of developing me as a human. So I kind of learned a lot of stuff on my own with friends. Not to say that they were poor parents. Hopefully that's not the message that comes across. There's just always the good and the bad. The good, they were great providers. I am the human I am today because of them. So I cannot, and even with the struggle, struggle makes an individual. So uh, I'm kind of happy I went through that struggle because I wasn't like, my uncles and, and other friends, family members that had five different women pregnant and they have, you know, they're not married or settled down. They weren't there for their kids. They never provided for their kids. So I wasn't one of that. And I didn't want to be that type of individual um, to my kids. So that's why I was very selfish uh, coming up in my 20s and 30s. And I became a firefighter at 29. Um, and we could go through that. A story that's a whole separate story that I could share um, but and even once I became a firefighter uh, the the title comes with a lot of uh, accolades I guess for the lack of better words you know you're a New York City firefighter it, it, uh, it, it echoes everywhere you go uh, and I've been around the world uh, so it's 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 been it's been pretty cool um, but it is. It, it wasn't. Uh, I. I mean. I want to stress the fact that I had great parents. <laughs> it's just that they they try to make things work to the best of their abilities with what they had, and uh, that's that's where I'll I'll stop that thought process there. No, but you see, it's so interesting, and that's why I love these early life conversations. Some some people's life stories, you know, early life is is horrific, you know, and I was amazed how many people had really awful childhoods, you know, were victims of predators and all kinds of stuff. But then you have, you know, other um, family dynamics where, you know, more often than not, you see exactly what you said. Dad was a, a traveling salesman. Dad was a submarine, you know, um, captain, and, and then gone for months and months and months or hours and hours and hours in the waking hours of a child and that has an impact too and it and it's it's a hard balance as you know even as a firefighter because if you're the single breadwinner which i was for for a long time um you know where is that balance between you know your regular work maybe taking a side job or overtime but also being there for your kids you can't be there all the time you have to go there and work obviously but you know understanding that as you said before the the american dream we tend to get pulled towards that kind of materialism. And the TV tells you, oh, you know, Felix, you don't have enough stuff yet. Keep working, buy this stuff, and then you'll be happy. You know, so it's just from a child's eyes, all the money in the world wouldn't have replaced your dad just being there at the baseball games. Right. Right. So with that, you, you talked about playing baseball. Did you ever do any combat sports when you were of school age? I did Taekwondo. Um only because it was something that I really liked. I was, I, so I was extremely overweight as a kid growing up. Um, food in the uh, Hispanic uh, culture is a way, uh, I wouldn't even just limit it to Hispanic culture. A lot of cultures, uh, food is a way to express love. So my, mo my mother and my grandmother loved to cook. You know, when we have our fam family party, it was just, 
a plethora amount of food and them seeing you enjoy the food is is showing love you know and then going for second and thirds so uh i was a, a husky kid growing up most of my life so i didn't really have anybody to tell me hey maybe you should stop doing this maybe we should be a little more active let's go out let's play here uh i really didn't have that um so i did, did do some activities I, I did literally for a little while it was a local league through the church that we had in, in the neighborhood uh and i did do taekwondo for a few years but never really moved up in rank or anything like that it wasn't until my uh late 20s that i really started taking that serious um but growing up i i was a trustworthy kid so my mom really trusted me a lot so i was venturing off and in my neighborhood i grew up on uh in in manhattan it was a cross between spanish harlem and washington heights those that take geography in that area would question what i just said but i don't really care we called it uptown and but it was really tough streets back then especially in the 80s and in in the early 90s um there were drug dealers on every corner very violent area but to me it was just my neighborhood so i was never afraid to walk down from one block to another i obviously wasn't in that life i actually never used drugs ever um uh something that kind of now that i'm in my 40s i wish i would have partaken a little <laughs> bit but uh, um and I, i could get to that mindset if you remind me later i explain why i never i never uh did any drugs but i had best friends that sold drugs and used drugs and I was just uh in my mind frame because of what I wanted to do in the future I was like well that's bad I don't want to do that so let me stay away from that. Um but that's uh I kind of lost my 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 train of thought there with what I was trying to say but it's all good. No no it was good so you you were talking about the uh you know the the streets being rough in those times that was pre kind of Giuliani um you know when when they actually made some positive changes <laughs> back in the day. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um All right, well then, but you mentioned about what you want to do in the future. So, what were you dreaming of becoming in high school age and then walk us through from that to 29 years old when you were finally able to join the fire service? Wow, excellent question. Uh there's a lot uh haven't really shared this with anyone before, but I could start early on. This was in the early 80s. Um I was on a main strip my I lived in a H type six story building huge building it has like eight apartments per floor and uh it was one of the only buildings on the block there was a whole bunch of taxpayers next to me like a cleaners and a supermarket and a jewelry place and things like that but uh it was a long block and uh our building was the only one so we had a lobby and uh in the summertime what we used to do is get beach chairs and sit outside when I ride I rode my bike back and forth you know and, and it's a huge uh a pe- pedestrian walkway a lot of lot of traffic a lot of people walking back and forth on Broadway um there was this one instance I can't really tell you the date I just remember um I saw an extraordinary amount of city buses and and remember back then each corner had their own uh drug dealer so every corner that was their spot where they did their thing 
and there was always rivals between one corner and across the street and three blocks away, and they were all competing for the money and the clientele. And I'm, I'm guessing this was Giuliani. I don't know. I mean, I, maybe not. Um, actually, no, because this was in the 80s, so I'm not sure who was the mayor there. I'm kind of embarrassed to admit that, but it is what it is. Um, long story short, there was a whole bunch of city buses that pulled up, and then a whole bunch of cops just came out of those buses and started tackling guys and arresting people and i was in awe i was like who are these super soldiers it was amazing and you know i remember asking like what's going on and, and why this is happening and i remember my mom grabbing me and we went inside the building but it was a glass front building so we could see outside and then we see the chaos and then all of a sudden there's gunshots and i'm like holy cow what's going on they were like oh that's the cops they're trying to clean up the area and as a, as a young boy i was like that's amazing. That's something that I want to do. And I remember telling my mom ever since then that I wanted to become a cop. I wanted to become a police officer and that's all I wanted to do forever. So that's the reason why I stayed away from the drugs and, and I never sold anything. I wasn't a juvenile delinquent. Uh, I mean, partly because I was representing my family and I had that in my head as a young kid that my dad works hard so I don't want to dis disappoint him by coming home and, and, and getting suspended or hanging out with the wrong crowd and things like that. So I had that in the back of my head. But growing up uh, and even through high school, my game plan was to go to John Jay College uh, in, in, in Manhattan. And John Jay College is a, is a criminal justice college. So I ended up going to a Catholic high school, St. John's Preparatory in Astoria, Queens. Uh, this was in the uh, early 90s. So I was traveling from the Bronx to Queens because I was going to a well-established high school preparatory school that will prepare me for life, which was nonsense. It was all just money and it is what it is. <laughs> it's a great high school, don't get me wrong, but you know, it was a Catholic high school. They were doing more drugs in that high school than in a regular public school because kids are so Catholic school kids supposed to be trustworthy. Come on. We wore, we wore a uniform and it was just as chaotic as it would be in a public school but this one uh you will get the better of choices of kids to go because the parents were paying an arm and a leg per month to attend the school um so then i graduated high school and i, I made it into john jay and uh i went all four years i graduated with a bachelor's in forensic psychology being that my mindset was I wanted to be a crime scene specialist and looking into crime scenes and reading the minds of, you know, these people committing these murders. And that was something that turned me on. And I was like, man, okay, I'll start as a beat cop and it's all good. But for the life of me, I cannot get hired by the NYPD. I took three different exams and to this day, I don't, I can't get an, a clear cut answer as to why? I mean, maybe I felt the psych. I know it wasn't a drug test and I destroyed the physical, so it wasn't that. Um, but even their doctors at the psych could not say, yeah, you felt the psych. So I'm going to leave that up to my guardian angels, leading me not down that path. That's the only way that I could be settled with that because I hate not completing something. Um, so then I, uh, after college, I was like, shit, what the fuck am I going to do in my life? I, I really don't know. I I'm, I'm, was trying to um, become a cop, and that was uphill battle. I was just phone call after phone call, and 
I even hired my own psychologist to do an, an eval on me. And he was like, I don't know why they haven't hired you yet. You're a perfect fit. And I submitted all that stuff and nothing. So then I was working for the New York Times. I was in a call center. And I kind of hated that nine to five thing. And, you know, I guess I, it, it was, it was just, it wasn't for me. I kind of wanted to be out there and active. And that was where my mindset was. So then I saw an ad to become an EMT and I was like, oh, all right. You know what? So then as I was working full time, I took an EMT course in six months. It was in the Bronx. I did that, and then I started applying for different private ambulance uh, companies. And then the FDNY came out with an, an ad saying, hey, you could join the FDNY to become an EMT. And I was like, all right. It wasn't something that was that I kind of wanted to do. But I was like, you know what? I want to work for the city. Let me start my clock now, and, and I'll work up the ranks or even swap over back to PD or whatever the case may be. So fast forward, it was 2002, I became an EMT for the FDOI. I worked in the South Bronx, literally uh, two miles from where I lived. So I kind of covered my area as well. Um, and that was wild times in the South Bronx as, a, as an EMT. It's, uh, I've seen a lot of stuff. Um, and then there was a memo that came out and said, hey, do you want to take an exam to become a firefighter? And... It never dawned on me that that was an option. Uh, back then, it wasn't something that was publicized. You kind of have to know somebody that knows somebody or have a family member on the job that would tell you, hey, there's a test coming up, take this test, and you could get on. Um, there was a lawsuit about that and the hiring process of the FDY and things like that. So that I, we could get into that a little bit. I don't know a small amount of it if you want to get into that as well. But... Uh, I got in through the promotional side, which is now these days known as the back door, where people in the current time, you know, you, you're on the job, you want to get your son on the job or a cousin or a family member, tell them, hey, go through EMS, work your penance there for two years, and you could take the next promotional exam, and then you could come and streamline right into the FDY Academy. And... That's the way I did it, not knowing that that was a, a route to take, uh, but that's the route that I took. And it was the best decision. And let me tell you, I took the test in March of 05, and I got hired September of 05. And it was just a few months period, and it was the easiest process in the world. Yeah, and you I'm, normally I, hear people say it's years. It's, it takes years, and especially you need to score 100 on a written exam if you're doing the open competitive. So there's a few exams. There's the open competitive, and there's the promotional. The promotional, you're already within the FDNY family, so the, the background investigation is less uh, stringent than the open competitive because uh, they already had all my pedigree. They had all my stuff. So it was just me making a lateral movement over to the fireside. So it was a faster process, and... I was amazed on how easy that process was. They, they didn't give me any issues at all with anything. And again, that's why I leave it up to my guardian angels saying, hey, you maybe don't want to become a cop. I even applied for the New York State Troopers and the Jersey State Troopers while I was working for the New York Times. And I didn't get hired from them because the NYPD didn't hire me. 
Good Lord is like, dude, I'm trying to tell you you need to be a firefighter, yeah, for God's sake. I'm <laughs> extremely stubborn, and hot, I, I just, this is something that I wanted to do, and there's still a little hole in my heart that kind of wants to, I mean, nowadays, I'm kind of happy that I'm <laughs> in the FD, because, wow, the type of disrespect the cops are getting is ridiculous, but that's a whole other topic. Yeah. Yeah, so with that, you touched on being an EMT in um, the South Bronx. So give me give me some snapshots of that because the the book that I wrote recently, we forget that most people have no idea what we see, what goes on behind the curtain. So through an EMT's eyes in the Bronx, what what kind of things were you seeing and what kind of calls were you running? The 911 system in New York is... Uh, um, not utilized properly. It's it's an issue because the amount of calls that we get, I would, I'm gonna put a number at, I would say 85% of all the calls that come in is somebody complaining about a stomach ache or a toothache, take me to the hospital in their mindset, I take a, an ambulance to the hospital, I'll get seen by a doctor faster. Little do they know that there's a triage system when you walk into the hospital that kind of uh, puts a brick wall and if you're not in severe pain or have uh, impending uh, death, the doctor is not going to see you right away. And that's an international myth too. International. Yeah. So people don't really realize that. So the, the, the South Bronx, you get really jaded with the amount of calls that you work. Um, and, you know, you're in an ambulance, you're with a partner and, uh, you know, you get 15 jobs within an eight-hour period, transporting these people to the hospital is all mundane, but then you get that gunshot or you get that stab or you get somebody hit by a car or you deliver a baby, um, but you see people at their worst. And the toughest part with that is having the wits about you. You show up to somebody's house. There's family members everywhere crying and screaming, and the person is down, lifeless, and is your show. And if you can't rely on your training, and if if you're a mess, then that sets the family off. So that's another dynamic that uh, EMTs and paramedics uh, everywhere don't really get much credit for, being able to have the command presence in a scene and be able to perform the basic uh, life support for that individual until we could transport them. And being able to calm the family members down and be able to get information on the patient. When was the last time you saw them? Uh, what were they doing before this happened? And then having to start CPR and working that whole that whole scene is pretty tough. And if you have somebody, and I've seen people that falter under that light. I've seen people uh, doing fantastic under that light. And then there's others that do fantastic and then joke around because that's the way that they bury their emotions deep and uh and that's one of the things we could get about the firefighters and the firehouse life also which is um something that you broadcast in your book and we kind of don't really talk about um the outlets uh and the experiences that uh these men and women go through and, and nobody really addresses it and i'm guilty of not addressing it myself and maybe that's why a lot of my relationships uh never worked out because I kind of held everything to myself. Everything was buried inside, and I used jujitsu and CrossFit to kind of 
segue through that terrain that, you know, I really haven't addressed a lot of the stuff that I've seen. And it's tough, you know, seeing somebody shot in the head or, you know, somebody shot in the chest and the blood is leaking everywhere. You have to control that bleed and you have to drive to the hospital and, uh, you know, give a telemetry report. There's a lot of stuff that you have to be calm, cool, and collected to deliver information to save the person's life that a lot of people don't. And I don't really remember going through that in the uh, EMS Academy. I mean, they put us in different scenarios, but a lot of the mindset and how to calm yourself and take a tactical reset and be calm, cool, and collected wasn't really addressed. I mean, it takes a certain individual to kind of be able to do all that and 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 manage that situation in, in that light. And, uh, and there's a lot of stuff that I've even, even spoken about with, with firefighters. I mean, some people are speaking about it like yourself and, and, and myself, but others are really just, hey, we, it's just a job that we do shut up pretty much. Yeah, well, with the training as well, I think that's that's one of the things that I've noticed. When, when you think about what we do on the EMS side, the best way to describe it to people, if you put a blindfold some, on someone and gave them a couple of bags and then just pull the blindfold off and boom, now you're a shooting, a stabbing, a cardiac arrest, a train wreck, you know, whatever it is. Like how many careers in the entire planet get to do that? You know, and you get almost like a belittling, um, you know, fr- oh, you're not a doctor. Well, I disagree. <laughs> that moment, you're, you're it. You and your EMT partner are the only people that are on scene to save that person's life. And you think about it, even the ER, and obviously they're incredible ER nurses and physicians and everything, but you're still painting a picture for them, a, a, an educated picture. Whereas all we have when we respond is, is the dispatch report and they're at the mercy of the frantic family members that may, may be completely wrong. I've, I've been to a hemorrhage before and it was a self-inflicted gun wound, gu- a gunshot wound. Yes, Good it shot. was a hemorrhage, but yeah, there was a gun on scene, <laughs> completely different scene. Um, yeah. But again, I think the inability to save is something that we don't do a good job of teaching in EMS. And then, like you said, um, processing that call, understanding that that is completely abnormal to see that kind of trauma and there yes. needs to be an offloading. So while we're on this kind of message, let's talk about that for a moment. So yeah. the, the, to me, the old school firehouse was a really good place to offload to process but what we're seeing now some some from a good place you know good intentions where you have this the the um single bunk rooms you know which i think is a great idea in multi-company houses so you can sleep when the other ones are going on calls um and another one is cell phones so you know what have you seen as far as as kind of that element the the, the, the good environments that you've watched and maybe some of the, the negatives that you're seeing maybe in 2021 <clears throat> I got to be careful how I answer this because uh, I am in a senior man role these days in my firehouse and um, it just so happens to be my time to be the the guy everybody looks at. Um, and I remember coming up, I had five dudes in the firehouse with 20 plus years on the job and here I am with just 18 years. Actually, I have 18 and a half years with the FDNY, three and a half of them started with EMS. So I have about 15 going on 16 years just on, on, on the fire side. I kind of want to put that out there. I don't want guys, oh, he's dropping time and using <laughs> How dare you? It's a big thing in New York, so I just want to clear, <laughs> clear the air with that. Um, but at 16 years now, I'm, I'm top row, one of the top five guys in, in my firehouse. Um, 
I can tell you that the conversation about what we see and how we deal is not being spoken of. It's not. And um, guys are just partying themselves to death to be able to deal with that and not knowing that there is there are outlets out there to deal with it. Um, that being said, even with me, so, okay, let's say we go to a job um, we see something after every job, we come back and we sit down at the kitchen table and we have a conversation. Hey, what did you do? What did you see? Where were you? It was like a kind of like a, um, after action review. Some guys will say, Oh, I did this. I wish I would have done this better. Okay. We'll drill on this tomorrow. We'll drill just the next time you're in so that that wouldn't happen again. So that's a good way to kind of, uh, rectify visually what you could do next time that that situation happens. We all know that fires doesn't happen the same ever. So um, mental visualization on how to perform your task is something that I'm huge and I talk to the probies about as well. But uh, I try to tell the guys in the firehouse also, you know, we go on, a, on an EMS run um, and that's the engine. And I'm not sure if it's the same with you guys, but in New York, the engine response to CFR runs, um, which is e EMS calls pretty much. We're supposed to go on high priority EMS calls, but people now understand if they say, hey, I'm short of breath, my heart hurts because their stomach hurts, they will say that to get a, a call generated and get someone to transport to the hospital faster, not knowing because of the triage system, they'll get a four hour wait in the ER and they haven't even been seen yet. Um, but those are the kind of calls that we get. But um, what my senior guys taught me is when you go to EMS runs, you know, you walk out and pretend there's a fire somewhere. How would you, as the control guy or as the backup guy or as a nozzle, what would you do in this particular type of scenarios? On firematics and tactical and standard operating procedures, we have lengthy conversations about but we don't have conversations about is what do you do when you go home after you see something, uh, seeing a kid burn or um, seeing somebody being dragged down uh, lifeless or doing CPR, which in the COVID times, I mean, I don't want to switch the subject. I'm sure that's something you're going to ask, but we've seen a lot of deaths between April and May of 2020. It was astronomical. And, we're not even talking about that. You know, everybody was like, oh, whatever, you know, life is back to normal. Let's go party. Let's go here. Let's go there. But nobody's really saying, hey, how are you feeling? What, what's going on? And I'm guilty of that because I have a lot of shit going on in my life. I have goals and stuff. So kind of now that I'm talking about it, I, I am the change. I should be the change that I want to see. I should be the one saying, hey, how are you feeling? Are you okay? What's going on? Things like that. Because one of the issues is we take for granted that everybody that passed the fire academy, they're alpha personality. They're strong. They have their shit together. So we don't have to worry about what happens outside of the firehouse. We just have to worry about your proficient at your job at the firehouse. Whatever happens after that, fix that shit. You're a fucking grown-ass man. You're a grown-ass woman. Fix it. That is what we take for granted. But there's a lot that happens outside that nobody really talks about. People, 
I'm 44. I still, and I have a 15 month old. I'm like, shit, I don't have my shit together. I fuck up all the time. And oh, yeah, I'm sleep deprived. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, shit. And I was a mess in my 30, in my 20s and 30s, you know? And now I'm going to thrust it upon this instructor uh, suit. And I'm like, shit, I have to tell you what to do. But I need to first practice what I preach before I could tell you. And that's my goal and longevity from my mid-30s to now. If I'm going to tell you, hey, do this, I need to do it to come to the idea that, hey, this works. You know what? That shit don't fucking work. Fuck that. Don't do that. Try this. You know, that's where I'm at with it. And that's how I want to play my senior man role until I move up in rank or whatever happens between the future here and there. But to get back to your question... I really don't think, at least from my perspective, and I kind of want to get that disclaimer out there. I, I should actually let off with that. <laughs> the views and opinions expressed today by me <laughs> are solely my personal opinions. It does not represent the opinions of the FDNY and or its membership. I, sh- I should have let off with that. Julie knows people get, upset <laughs> <at me. laughs> people get upset at me because I'm very vocal and I say things um, and my tact isn't sometimes the best. And I've gotten in trouble uh, through my time at the Fire Academy because I express certain things that nobody really want to talk about. And we could get into that if you want to as well, because I gave up that disclaimer. I'm not sure what minute we are in this. No, no, <laughs> we're, well, we're good, but that's a good segue. So you ended up obviously teaching at the Academy, and we'll get to that in a moment. But that sure. transition from wanting to be in law enforcement, finding yourself an EMS, Tell me about The Rock. Tell me about your experience going into the, 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 the fire side. And did, did you get bitten by the bug right when you, you know, finally got to make entry to a fire and realize how fucking awesome it is? <laughs> um, yes. My experience, well, I really had no family member on the job. I really had no idea what firefighters do other than running into burning buildings. And I was like, well, I'm not a pussy, so I, I could run into burning buildings. It's all good. Uh, I'm not really the best in with height, so climbing the aerial was challenging, but I was able to be my own cheerleader and kind of, you know, pass that. Um, and most people will say, oh, he's a fucking pussy, whatever, but climb a fucking aerial with a tough, a tough ascent, and you'll see, and you're carrying 120-something pounds of equipment with you, it's, it's really tough. Um, the roof guy in any ladder company has a tough position. Um but I went to the academy, and actually, I, there's another story I've never told anyone. I got hired September of 2005, and I went from EMS to fire. There was a huge controversy because there was 96 candidates from EMS that were promoted to fire. We all got promoted. We got sworn in. But that left a huge deficit in the manpower for EMS. In, in uh, November, December of 2005. So then EMS was scrambling, hey, you know, you're, you're leaving us with some some uh, buses and they're 89s, they're where they sit, they're unmanned. We, you know, we got 90 people that just left us. What do we do? I happen to be one of the 11 individuals that get sent back to EMS for three months. So I left. I handed all my equipment. I I did um, the 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 swearing in and and all, and all the paperwork for fire, and then I get a call. I was supposed to start the academy Monday morning. 
I get a call Saturday evening by this lady called Peggy Quinn. She no longer works for the FDNY, but she has this very distinctive voice. And she said, hey, I have something to tell you. This is not a joke. Um, you have to go back to EMS. And I was like, what? At this point, three and a half years in, I was a jaded individual with EMS. Don't get me wrong. I go to a cardiac arrest. I go to a gunshot. I could work them up with zero issues, transport them with zero issues. Uh, but what I was sick of is all the bullshit calls, stomach aches and vomiting. I'm like, dude, you're a grown ass man. Go to CVS, get your, get some shit. You don't have to go to the hospital for this. This is a waste of fucking time and resources. Like, I don't understand why you're, you're calling for this. And, but I don't want to be that asshole. So I needed a kind of, I needed a change. And so when I got the opportunity to become a firefighter and I was hired so fast, I jumped at the opportunity and I had zero clue what I was going to experience at the fire academy. I had no idea. What I know is that I needed to run a mile and a half under 12 minutes. And this is like a boot camp style academy. So let me start working out. And that's what I did. Um, but firematics, learning what each position was, that was a whole new world to me. And I had zero clue. But what really hit me besides graduating the academy and having that pride was when I went to my first funeral. And I actually went to my first funeral two weeks into uh, being in my firehouse. I can't tell you now who the individual is. I'm really ashamed of that also. I should know this, but I remember going to a funeral. I remember my senior guys telling me, you have to attend every funeral where there's no ifs, ands, or buts, no matter what's going on at home. You have to let the people know that you have to go. And I was like, fine. I mean, I, this is what we knew. This is what we do. But the sea of firefighters, thousands upon thousands of firefighters all took the day off to go uh, visit their brother that passed. That is when it hit me. It was like, this is bigger than anything I've ever been involved with ever. And I was, there's so much pride. And I was like, what the fuck is this? And I, I think it was a better feeling than I was one of the lucky individuals. My very first tour. So in New York, we work a, a day tour and a night tour. A day tour is nine hours from nine to six. And a night tour is 15 hours from six to nine. When you first get out the academy, you're doing straight tours. So you're doing two day tours. You get uh, 48 hours off, I believe. And you do two night tours and you get, you know, 72 hours or something like that. You know, if you're listening to this and you're from the FD and I said it wrong, simmer <laughs> down. We're not supposed to let people know about our, our calendar anyway. But as a pro B, you're, you know, you're working straight tours. So meaning you're working two night tours in a row, blah, blah, blah. My very first night tour at the firehouse, I, uh, you know, obviously this is a brand new environment for me. We could get deeper into that if you want. So I'm just saying the story because uh, I'm just comparing my first do nozzle job with my first time at a funeral and they were really close to close. Uh, but my very first tour at 8.58 in the morning, I get off at nine o'clock. We get a call for fire and happens to be a second alarm and I had the nozzle uh, and I, uh, extinguished two floors of fire my very first tour on in my firehouse and that set a precedence for me for my for my senior guys because like, oh well, this guy isn't fucking scared of going into fires because the myth back then and not that I'm speaking for all my white brothers but they were afraid that inundating the fire department with ethnic folks is going to diminish their proficiency in the firehouse, which is complete bullshit. But yeah, we all know it's actually um, women that ruin the fire service. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Holy shit, man. While we're on All myths, right. let's throw that one in too. <laughs> I could tell you a few stories, my friend, but we'll, we'll get to that later if we have some time. But that is an, an ongoing issue. So I knew I had that uphill battle. I was only the fourth member ever in my files to come in to be of, of a different race uh, or a different color, I should say. Um, and the guys that were there already that have been in the firehouse for two or three years. They were just, uh, they were just worker bees. They didn't really express any, any uh, issues or concerns, or they were just like, "Hey, this is a tough firehouse." That's all I can tell you. You have to experience it for yourself. Um, but being that I got a first do nozzle job right off the bat, I showed them that I wasn't scared. And I was able to professionally do my job. They were like, all right, well, we, we have a good one. You know, it's fantastic. This is great. We could work off that. Um, and just comparing that, and I can remember it, it was it, it was a three-story private dwelling. They converted the attic into an apartment, believe it or not. It was crazy. So we went up to the, to the second floor. There was fire there, but it looked like a makeshift restaurant. There was like like tables and chairs everywhere. Obviously, you can't see anything because of the smoke and the fire. And this was at, at 8, 8.58 in the morning or 9 o'clock in the morning. But it was weird that there was so much chairs and furniture there and that we had to go up these bullshit stairs to go to the attic and it ended up being up there a little bit because it went from the walls. And I was like, holy shit, like, this is fucking amazing. This is... And... It took me by surprise how fast I gravitated to the life and how at no point in that situation was I worried or scared. And that's when I was like, okay, well, um, I'm, I have issues. I have, so I, have, I have to go talk to somebody because anybody else would be worried and petrified and scared and, and literally want to get back home to the family and making sure everybody's okay. But in my mindset... I had a task to do. I had the nozzle. I did everything that I was taught to in the academy and everything the senior guys have been telling me to do. And I did it and it worked like clockwork. And then I have the most senior guy shaking my head, taking me out for a drink that night, which was like, or that afternoon because I had to work that night tour. But that was where it was gratifying for me that I was able to do that. And then a few weeks later, I went to that funeral and I saw the sea of firefighters all from New York paying respects to a fallen member and I was like, damn, this is humbling. This is something way bigger than what I expected to be part of. And it was beautiful. And, and the, even the other funerals I've been to is the same thing. And, and the respect and the camaraderie and, and the brotherhood, uh, that is a beautiful thing. What I wish that could change is having a conversation, a fair conversation on how to mend, how to decompress after the fact, once you go home, how to not be an asshole to your family members. And, you know, most guys just work overtime just to be in the firehouse, just to be in that camaraderie, whether it's ball breaking or, or having fun, you know, it depends on the type of groups that are working. But I think the escape for everyone, uh, not, I, I don't want to speak for everyone, but for the majority is to just work through it, work through the pain. Let me just pick up more overtime and whatever the case may be so that I don't have to my wife doesn't have to see me zone out or, you know, my mom or whoever you live with. 
I think that's something that needs to be brought up to the to the table and have a really really legit conversation about because most people just don't want to be a pussy. I don't want to. I'm, I'm not scared. What are you talking about? I'm good. No, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. And then you three drinks in and you're pissing your pants or you know you're 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 a lone wolf and want to leave or you're drinking and driving or you know you're trying to fuck everything that moves because you're trying to hide something that you haven't addressed. And, and it's just through a form of talk. That's the easiest way to do. Yeah. I, well, I agree 100%. I want to pull a couple of things out of what you said. But on that last piece, one of the most startling things that I've realized recently, and I retroactively now look at a lot of people I work with, especially a lot of the angry people I work with, was one poor coping mechanism of, you know, things that are basically troubling your mind is busyness. And it can, of course, be healthy. It can be, you know, be giving yourself projects and hobbies and things like that. But the easiest go-to is overtime. And that is the enemy because now you're even more sleep-deprived. Now you're seeing more stuff. And as we started this conversation, now you're away from your family even more. So there's a there's a ripple effect. There's a detriment to, you know, you're supposed to be that father, that husband, and you're there even less now. So I, I agree completely, you know, when... The, the conversation around mental health used to be, oh, you're being a pussy. I think it's the opposite. I think you're courageous as hell if you look in the mirror and go, I need to fucking fix this. I need to, I need to go to someone who can tear down all these things that I've been leaning on and look, you know, courageously at all the shit that's going on in my head and start slowly, you know, taking it apart so I can get back down and not even to the person I was because that's something I used to think about. You're not going to be the person you were. You've seen and done too much, but a more, you know, a, a new, resilient version of yourself. You, you grow from that trauma. But if you don't address it, you know, there's a Mexican proverb that says, uh, they thought we were seeds. No, they, let me get this right. They tried to bury us. They didn't know that we were seeds. So the more we push it down, the more shit is growing inside. And I love that. Eventually it's going to burst out. So I, I mean, I think the way, you know, the, what, what you said then was absolutely spot on. We have to stop patting ourselves on our backs for all the really shitty ways of coping with it and start patting ourselves on the back when we start choosing good, healthy ways of coping with it. Yeah. And that's the change I'm trying to create. And some of the old school salty dogs would say, oh, you're fucking trying to give them hugs and lollipops. Fuck that. These are grown men and blah, blah, blah. And there's a lot of vernacular used in the firehouse that... Uh, if you're on the outside looking in, you'll be like, what in the world is going on there? But um, I think just having compassion as a, as a human, it's something that's been overlooked in the last few years is even worse. And I don't even want to get into the political aspect of shit, but come on, like, take some ownership for, for, for yourself. You know, you representing this firehouse, you represent your family name, you're representing so much... Where is the onus? How rectified or, or how centered are you that we could rely on you on the fire ground if you can't take care of this shit on the outside? You know? Yeah, you just, just like a seed, you're, you're burying, burying it. That shit's going to come up eventually. It's going to happen. You're going to hit the wall at some point. Hopefully it's not on the fire floor where we need you the most. Yeah. Well, I think that's how, that's exactly how you get the kind of self-believing alpha <laughs> male and females to understand it is like put it in athletic terms you know your your favorite quarterback or 
you know, basketball forward or, you know, a hockey player is not drinking through the night, staying up all night. You know, they're, they're training and then they're resting and recovering. And that's great in the highest level of performance. So you beat your chest about being the best firefighter, the best tail, tailboard, but everything you're doing is making you much worse than you have the potential to be. And even with processing the mental health stuff, you can't be in that flow state if your mind is a maelstrom. So there's going to be a point where you might have been the rock star of the crew and now you're starting to become a liability. So yeah. it is absolute cowardice and weakness to have that rub some dirt in it, don't be a pussy mentality, I think. Listen, I am guilty of it. Um, so I can't really, and that's one of the things now as being a senior man role that I don't want to be, and no disrespect to anyone that represents this type of religion, but I don't want to be a Jehovah's Witness with this style of, uh, of coaching or mentoring. I don't want to force it on your throat. Hey, asshole, go home and sleep. Or listen, you need to work out or you need to eat better. I'm at some point, and even as a coach, and we could talk about that, um, you know, the whole coaching and strength and conditioning stuff. At some point, I started getting disappointed in people because I don't want to keep forcing you to do something. You should want to do it, and you don't know how to do it, so you hire me to root out all the fluff and get to the meats and potatoes of what you need to do to better yourself as a human, right? But I'm not there. I'm not going to call you at 8 o'clock. Hey, you know, you're, you're 10 minutes late for this workout. Where are you? Or... How come you haven't completed this workout? What's going on? And then hearing all these excuses under the sun, I was like, that's not, here's your money back. I, I don't want to deal with you anymore. And that's kind of the way, and might be poor tact, but I kind of want somebody that already hit rock bottom to help them back up because that's the only way somebody's going to learn. You could tell them to the blue in the face. I do it right now. There's guys in my firehouse that are overweight and nobody's talking about it because that's another coping mechanism. The firehouse is filled with, a shitload of food and 90% of it is all bullshit and you eat your feelings and most guys eat their feelings because some guys have a dominant wife at home that don't let them eat certain things so they, they come to a firehouse in 24 hours they're going ballistic right and oh you know what I'll start Monday Monday is my day one of this diet don't worry I'm gonna be good oh you know what it's only the 25th I'm gonna wait to the I'm gonna wait to month day one of the month and i'm going to start my my diet plan or whatever the case may be there and and it's self-discipline and and things like that that i have to deal with and i know guys are going to be pissed off that i mentioned that but it's the absolute truth listen i don't have a uh, a perfect body or you know i'm not chiseled and things like that I, I have some love handles and it is what it is something i'm dealing with but you tell me to perform anything and i get that shit done quickly you know and 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 you know, we're going to go run. We're going to do burpees. Whatever you want to do, let's do it. You know, because I'm, I'm in the front and I'm leading the pack with that. Um, you know, you want to climb, you want to go to the fire. For whatever it is that you want to do, I could do it. Um, that being said, if you know you're holding a little more than just the extra pounds, you know, that's something you have to address. And most guys don't really want to have a conversation about that. Yeah. Well, I think something that I try and... I try and paint the picture because I think one of the one of the issues with the 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 weight and the strength and conditioning side that's never ever discussed and and you know really needs to be brought to the forefront is our job is set us set up for us to fail like we don't you know the sleep deprivation what that does to the hormonal balances in you know, the sex hormones which in turn then creates you know the obesity the the diabetes I and mean, all these issues we are set it's an uphill battle 
So when the guys, you know, and I talk about this a lot, at the rock, on the diamond, on the draw ground, that's not a bunch of chunky monkeys. You know what I mean? I don't mean that in you know, derogatory, but you have some, you know, pretty in shape, mentally and physically resilient men and women standing on those diamonds. And yet fast forward 10, 15, 20 years in the fire service, a lot of us aren't pictures of health anymore. So they're... I'm sorry. Fast forward eight months once they graduate. That is what's going on these days. Really? They get their freshman 15, freshman 20. They come... I, I, I apologize for stopping you in that, in that train of thought, but this is something that's prevalent, is happening right now, and most guys are, aren't really hip to it. You go through your probation phase. Once you graduate the academy, they give you a year, a few months. Then you do your medical. There's a fifth grade medical, so you could come off probation, and then you're officially uh, a firefighter and so forth. Not that you were before, but you know what I mean. But then, you know, you go to your medical and you have to get weighed in. And most people end up coming to what we call fat camp because they have to lose 25, 30, 40 pounds to get back to full duty status. And that's not years. That's in months. And that's what happens when you're sleep deprived and you're making poor choices and you want to hang out with the men because you want people to love you. So you're going out and you're drinking or whatever the case may be. And one cheat meal ends up being every meal. And next thing you know, your, your uniform doesn't fit you correctly. Yeah. You know? yeah. And that's just it. So it's, it's understanding the environment. And same with the mental health. Like the reason you and I both believed the don't be a pussy mentality, you know, I mean, I would say it was only about eight years ago that I started really understanding and therefore shifting my mindset. But, you know, we were raised on... You know, Wesley Snipes and Chuck Norris and Schwarzenegger, none of whom have ever served, none of whom have ever, you know, been in the roles that you and I play, but they never cried on screen. They never, you know, they were these superheroes. So we, we had this, this complete facade as well of what it was to be a man. I think that's why it's so hard to switch that. Um, but yeah, but with, with the, with the, the wellness element, what's so frustrating to me is there is no downside. And, you know, there's so much resistance to annual fitness standards and wellness initiatives. But yet, A, you're going to be better at your job. And B, you're not going to fucking die a year after you retire. So if anyone can, you know, email me and tell me what what's the bad element of having standards in the fire service that we're held to year after year, not crazy ones that some powerlifter invented and you have to be at a, you know, military press 300 pounds, but fire related tasks that you just get tested on every year that gives you goals to maintain your health, maintain your wellness. And therefore that pension that you've worked 20, 25 years for, you can actually go and enjoy and play with your grandkids and really, really, you know, uh, enjoy the fruits of your, your labor. Uh, I, I agree, and it's uh, it's something where I wish we could have a open and honest conversations. Because I've, in my habitual line stepping days when I was full blown in, in the fitness unit, I would challenge guys to come and do FST. So FST is functional skills training. It's a huge obstacle course that's developed in the fire academy. When you're in the academy, you have to pass two versions of FST in order for you to graduate. That happens to be 20% of your grade in the fire academy is passing FST. FST is a motherfucker. It's a, it's a huge obstacle course. You're fully bunkered up, carrying equipment, and at some point you're on air and you have to finish the course on air. And the way they've done it before, when I went through the uh, academy, 
FST wasn't graded. It was just pass fail. You do the course, you finish on air, you pass. Um, there was a few issues with the women's group. I don't want to get into too much detail, um, but there was some court decisions or something happened where now it needed to be graded. It needed to be a certain time for you to have a, a certain grade in order for you to pass. So that happened um, before my time in the fitness unit, but that happened. And now you have to pass. Um, I still tell my candidates or, or my probies, you're going to go as hard as possible to get through this course because it's the most real life situation that you're going to be in as far as fatigue wise. And fatigue makes cowards out of us all. And I learned this every day doing jujitsu. You know, I could, I could be well rested. I could be well hydrated and I go two or three rounds with different dudes. And in just five minutes, they could put me in a situation where they're strangling me. And I'm like, holy shit, I'm going to die. Right. And obviously in the back of my head, I have a safety net saying, Hey, listen, I could just tap and this is over. It is what it is. But that fatigue, that being unprepared is what I'm talking about. And I, and I ex try to tell the probies this when we go to probie school, because if you haven't done FST, you do not know what I'm talking about. It is an absolute monster. Some that come into the academy well-prepared and in shape could destroy FST. We had some monsters go in there, crush it, be like, oh, I could do this again. It's all good. But then you have some that are mentally weak and already shook by the environment um, and didn't properly eat. Uh, Polly has a shitty life at home because they're in probie school for 18 weeks. And, you know, there's a lot of external variables that I could talk about. We could talk about that later. But um, getting back to what I was going to say, I was even offering guys money. I was like, listen, I come in, do FST, get 100, I'll give you 100 bucks. No, okay, I'll give you 500 bucks. You know what? Fuck it, I'll give you 1,000 bucks. Come and do it, right? And then we try to create a campaign to make that part of the annual medical or make that part of a drill. But this is what happens. And I know I'm gonna get a lot of hate for this, but I don't give a fuck, and this is, I'm just being transparent. Guys will say, oh, I have to go to the rock to do FST? Oh, I think I'm just gonna take a spill down the stairs. I got hurt. Uh, now I'm out. Now they're down one man, and now there's a manpower issue. That's the issue that we're having. Some guys aren't uh, upfront with their fitness, and you challenge them for something, and they're going to use a scapegoat to get out of it. Yeah. And that's what happened. Well, I see that as well. And again, I always preface this. There are some amazing departments doing so much right. And there are some amazing, you know, local union members that are really pushing wellness initiatives in an incredible way. But in my personal journey through some of the departments I've worked at, I've seen completely deconditioned union members fight tooth and nail any wellness initiative because they know they're going to be fucking called themselves so rather than do what's best for the fire department that we pay them to represent they would rather self-serve and put all the roadblocks in place and basically you know potentially kill many many of their men and women whether it's chronic illness or whether it's acute through lack of training and strength and conditioning it's more important for their own well-being than it is for the collective well-being. So that's that's what I see through my lens. It's, I mean, we're 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 speaking the same language. It's, and that's one of the things that I found a little interesting when I went to my firehouse. I would listen, as a pro, you can't go work out. You're gonna have to work out after your tour. I've been on my feet all day after my tour. Well, I'm exhausted. I got, and this is my second tour in a row. Like I don't want to work out. I'm not even gonna work out 
is just going to mean nothing. I'm actually adding more stress to my body by working out than I am if, if I didn't work out. And it's, it, does, it doesn't make any sense. And not that Proby should have that lifestyle where they feel free. Because right now, as listen, I'm in a great position in the firehouse. I'm one of the senior guys, and I'm a seated chauffeur. I go to work, and I drive. And I break balls and I joke around and I'm not a worker bee anymore. I don't have to change sheets. I still do a lot of the stuff because I want to do it, but I don't do it because I have to. The junior guys handle that shit. This is their house. Handle it. I did it for many years. Now it's your turn to do it. Um, but, you know, I say that because probably shouldn't have the freeway. I have the freeway in my fire. I do what the fuck I want whenever I want. I want to go take a nap. I go take a nap. It is what it is. You know, I'm the senior guy. This is my... And this is what I paid for my my um, my benefit of being a senior guy is being able to do what the fuck I want whenever I want. Obviously, it's I, I want to be respectful, you know. I don't walk around naked and shit like that. You know what I mean? I I, I could do what I want, but <clears throat> probies and junior guys unfortunately don't have that luxury where they can say, "Hey, after the meal, everything is done. We have a, a downtime if there's no calls. You know, can I go get a workout?" As a pro beast, my senior guys would be like, fuck no, are you crazy? Go go, go clean the bathroom or, or go go uh, drill on the rope. So let's let's do a drill. Like, you want to work out? Are you stupid? And like, this is not this is not Bally's, Jacqueline. And that's what they used to say back in the day. <laughs> you go work out at Bally's? All right, whatever. Um, but, you know, it was just, it was that. They will just give you things to do, um, which is good because we're drilling. But then if I want to get a quick workout in because I care about my aerobic capacity, they don't care about that. I'm changing things a little bit, at least now, where guys will listen. You want to go work out? Go work out. Don't do anything crazy. Don't be doing heavy squats because what if we get a run and, you know, you have to perform. But work out smartly. You know, be, be smart about it, you know, and hydrate. You know, drink water. And, and you know, that's one of the – how slowly I'm trying to change the, the, the dynamics of, of the firehouse. Brilliant. Well, I want to get into to your role at The Rock. But before we do, you touched on – you know, the initial impression of someone with differing pigmentation walking through the firehouse floor or, or, or door, excuse me. Um, and then, you know, you touched on, on some of the things you've seen with, with the female class or, or you heard, heard had changed with the female class. This is the one thing that, that really irks me is, you know, we hear diversity, you know, and, and I think there's a very, very positive, um, you know, proactive way of, of, reaching into all communities to make sure we find the best candidates from everyone but i think a lot of the the resentment and you know miseducation has come from when an hr department or whatever it is from a city or a county goes oh we need all right we need one british guy with fucked up teeth we need 10 black guys <laughs> we need you know six lesbians yeah. 12 flamingos you know you know and you just you're just purely doing it on on checking boxes and that doesn't give you any skills or background or mindset or anything on the flip side, and I, t I talk about these guys all the time because what they're doing is amazing. One of my friends here in Ocala started a mentoring program, completely free. And I think it's three times a week they meet. All these kids have to do is show up. That is it. They give them the equipment. They give them all the guys volunteer their time. Um, you know, they literally prepare them for Fire Academy. There are scholarships available for Fire Academy. Usually the local agencies hire those guys right out of Fire Academy. And that to me is how you truly represent all elements of the community by reaching into them. As you said, you had no idea what it was like to be a firefighter. I actually didn't either. I didn't have any family, but you put that. So now Felix, you know, meets that local mentor group. Maybe you would have bypassed the bullshit law enforcement route and come straight to fire. 
Absolutely. <laughs> you know? I, I 100% would have done that. But now, now, these great men and women walk through a firehouse door. Obviously, it's going to take, you know, a few years to get rid of some of that prejudice. But as you, you know, did because you were trained well, these men and women walk in the door. They start, you know, they're, they're good rookies. They perform well on the fire ground. Everyone goes, oh, yeah, prejudice is bullshit. All these people are great now. So, so that's obviously my, my lens on this whole thing. Talk to me, you know, what would be some of the best ways of finding the best men and women of all colors and creeds to join FDMY? I wish they would have done this, but I think what they did was they just saw numbers and okay, we need more minorities. Let's go to the minorities neighborhoods and let's try to recruit them from these neighborhoods and that's exactly what they did there was a re recruitment unit and it was overtime i even volunteered for a few years before going to the rock and all you had to do was say hey i would i went to a train station in the bronx jerome and fordham get as many of these people to sign up give me their names and, and their address and their email so we could send them information about the exam that's all they did i really didn't have a conversation about them about you know it's something you really want to do or are you really interested about it? It was just get me names, get me contact information. That's it. If it was up to me, I'll go to local high schools, go to sports teams, go to uh, CrossFit gyms. You know, CrossFit is everywhere. Let's go there. Let's get young men and women that uh, need a plan B because obviously everybody wants to be a professional athlete, especially if they're doing a sport in high school. I don't want to kill the Jews there, but hey, you know, you could take this test and make sure that you're set up just in case shit doesn't happen. Because being a professional athlete, getting paid, you know, going to the NBA, NFL, all these places, is like winning the lottery. You know, there's so many talent out there. Not that you're not talented, you know, have them explain it to them in that way. Hey, listen, this is a great job. You're in shape. You already have a good routine and habits. You could bring this over to the, to the fireside and we can start from there. But unfortunately, they're not doing that. They're just getting numbers and getting people. And I'm, I'm, I will be honest once we get to the topic about what happens at the fire academy, because I've seen it since 2015. And it's something that still blows my mind how a grown adult cannot do a push-up. Well, let's get to that now. Expand. Sure. It's So I started in the fitness unit in 2015, uh, June of 2015. Um there was a previous fitness unit that was there before. Uh, this one individual was there for a very long time. He was actually my fitness instructor, and he was there a few years before that. So he was the one that established the FDNY Health and Fitness Unit. I don't, I don't know if I should say his name or not, but you know, just so that I won't get uh, called by the legal department, I'm just going to keep things vague. Hopefully that's okay. I can share things with you off air if you want to know information. This is just kitchen table talk. So kitchen table talk, you know what that term? Oh, yes, Obviously. absolutely. Oh, beautiful. That's, duh, you're a fireman. There's other people that might not know, but kitchen table talk is when you're talking and you're in the kitchen and you have all types of experts in life and they're all firefighters. And <laughs> you put the world to uh, rise. Yeah. So for transparency, I don't know 100% what happened in this particular story, but from what I heard over the kitchen table is he, there was a chief's son that was in a class. He disciplined the chief's son. And by that time, he already pissed off so many of the people in higher rank because everybody, is, you know, everybody has egos and things like that. So 
um, he was already on thin ice, uh, this particular instructor that ran the fitness unit prior to. And he made some comments to this one particular probationary firefighter that happened to be the son of a chief that was prevalent on the job. And one thing led to another. Fast forward, the guy was removed from his position. He technically was untouchable because he created the fitness unit from the ground up and what it is to that point he did. And I mean, major props to him. He's a legend. He's legit. Um, and he's been around the circuit for a little while. He's since retired um, from that fiasco. Fast forward to 2015, there was no fitness unit. And the, the whoever the powers that be were saying, well, we need a fitness unit for the next academy class. So this was this happened to be in March-ish of 2015. June of 2015, they, were, they had a class set up for 330 probationary firefighters to start. No fitness unit. So there was a lieutenant at the time, right now he's a captain, uh, Tom Tanzosh, which his dad was a fitness unit instructor before this guy that I was talking about held reign. Um, so somebody reached out to him. He said, okay, I'll give it a try. Pause for one second, because I'm going to explain another story how I met Tom Tanzosh. One of the guys from the Barbell Club, his name is Sasha. He... You created a CrossFit-esque style uh, competition early on. I think it was in 2013-ish. And he was trying to do it every year after that. He really couldn't do CrossFit because not many people knew about CrossFit like that, to be honest. But it was a CrossFit-style type of competition. He was raising money for his mom that died from ALS, I believe. So it was just like a fundraiser thing. And it was geared towards firefighters and things like that creating awareness. Props to Sasha and, and the Barbell Club, and, I, and I'm going to do my best to help them with this upcoming competition. Um, but I got a team together, uh, and we went to that competition. And at the semifinals, it was myself, my team, versus Tanzosh and his team, which I didn't know who they were because they were from Staten Island at the time, and we were from the Bronx, and it was just happens to be the finals. They won by 10 seconds on the clock, whatever. Props to them. It's all good. These 10 seconds is not much, but what Tanzo has to say, a win is a win. So he won. Fast forward a few years later, two or three years later, I get in contact with him because I, I hear that they're looking for instructors. And it happens to be him. And I say, oh, I, I know you from somewhere. And I was looking at old pictures that I took, and it happens to be all the guys that – he hired for the unit, happens to be part of that team, and then I came on board, and and that's where it was. So we were a makeshift of 15 guys, different firehouses, everybody. The one thing that we had in common was we loved fitness. Fitness was part of it, and Tanzosh was um, very robotic, and he had big shoes to fill, and I understood why he was the way he was. I compare him to Hennessy, the, the, the drink, cognac. Uh, I call him white Hennessy because he has an acquired taste. You either <laughs> love him or you hate him. And some guys, the same thing with Hennessy. You either like Hennessy or you dislike Hennessy because the taste is very acquired. Um, but he already had a repetition on the job and so did his dad and his brothers. So he's a very hard-nosed. He's a fair individual, fair boss, but he expects, he expects a lot from you especially if he's trusting you with something. Um, so 
he happened to be a ruthless dictator when it came to the first few years of the fitness unit because we were the scabs across the picket line to come into the fitness unit, right? Everybody at The Rock had their allegiance to these previous instructor that got kicked out, and now they were expecting the fire academy just to fall by the wayside so we could, yeah, we stood up to the, the, the powers that be, but that's not how this machine works. Shit keeps rolling forward. You're not better than. No, but everybody's replaceable. So they were replaced. We came over and we learned pretty much on the job as, as the days passed in. How do we do things? How, you know, we, we trained and drilled and practiced as much as possible, but it was a learning curve. Um, but we did the best we could. We were successful in the first class and I fell in love with that. I took a break from my firehouse. So we could talk about that for a second if you like. Um, I would definitely recommend everyone to take a little break from their firehouse, right? You know, you're working in the firehouse. I was an overtime whore, so I was one of these guys that was working a lot because the paychecks were nice and I like to party and I like to travel the world. Um, so because of my my personality and my, my character, I was very abrasive. My confidence gets misconstrued as conceitedness a lot. So I, a lot of, oh, you know, who loves you more than you type thing, you know, you think you're the best at this. I'm just confident, dude. Like, I, I, you want me to be different? You want me to be soft just to appease your ego? No, I'm going to be who I am. This is how I am and this is the way I'm going to be. So I didn't have a lot of fans in the firehouse and they happen to have time on the job. So when you have time on the job, your voice echoes louder than everybody else's. Um, so there was a lot of personality issues that I had. And when I saw this opportunity to leave the firehouse, to try something else, I did it. And this was at the time where I was taking fitness extremely serious and I was being a coach. And this was something that I could add to my resume. Hey, New York City firefighter, New York City uh, fitness unit instructor slash firefighter. That's put that on any resume, you get hired anywhere. Um, and that was my mindset. And that's where I was, not knowing the influence I'm going to have later on with developing my persona as part of the fitness unit. But that was what my mindset was, and I was escaping the firehouse. Some people call me a coward. Oh, you left a coward's cold because, you know, you, you're afraid of fighting fires. I was like, that's your story, dude. Whatever you want to say, that's cool. I'm not afraid of fighting fires. I love fighting fires. I just needed something different for my mindset, for my mental health, right? Because I was going into, into the work. As soon as I pull up, and I see the cars in the lot, fuck, that asshole's working. 24 hours with them, I'm sitting next to him, not even talking, not joking around, that's not fun. Well, catching up on sleep, I think, is another thing. When you go to days, whether it's training, whether it's, you know, like you said, the, doing the, the fitness cycle or whatever it is, if you can get off shift work for, a, for you know, a few months, that in itself is such a great reset for the body. Boy, I tell you, James, I had the best sleep ever uh, because I don't work nights in, in, in fitness unit. You know, you're, you're working days. Um, the only bad part is that I had to be up at six in the morning. I'm sorry, I'm moving around, so hopefully there's not too much of a disturbance. No, you're good. Um, I had to be at the rock at six in the morning, so it actually kept me honest to my sleeping regimen. I had to be in bed. And I was in bed anyway by 8.30 because the amount of workouts that we do at the fitness unit is insane. And that's something we could get in, we could have conversations about also. But um, 
the the amount of uh, rest that I got was amazing. And I did that for five years straight where I had nights and weekends off and I had a sleep regimen. I was getting six, seven hours of sleep. I felt amazing. Um, and now that I'm back in the firehouse in full transparency, I'm not in the fitness unit. I'm still a member of the unit, but I am... Um, I am at my firehouse full time. Uh, I go to the rock on, on overtime and, and things like that. But um, and now is where I'm having the issues where I'm biting up more than what I could chew as far as fitness wise. And I'm not recovering as fast, especially being 44 is not easy. But, you know, I think it's because of rest also, you know. Um, but, yeah, going back to the uh, being a part of the fitness unit, it was very humbling um, to see a grown person not being able to do the basics that's required of them, uh, especially held to a standard under testing that has a career hanging in the balance. And it vexes me to the point where I really don't know what more I could do because this information is not a secret. You know what's expected of you before, or I would say before you take the test, because if you, if you want to do a search online or whatever the case may be, all this information is out there. Everyone and has now, TikTok now on Instagram. They sure as shit can find the standards for a hiring process. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. And, I, and, and the part that vexes me the most, James, is that the higher-ups in charge blame the training regimen as opposed to blaming the people that come unprepared. And that's something that I'm sure I'm going to get some flack over, but it is what it is. There is a, there's a, there's a method to the madness, right? Um, and I'm just, I'm being careful with what I say because I've been in trouble in the past <laughs> and uh, I know that I'm going to get a phone call hands down once. And I really don't care. It is, I'm not saying anything that's untrue and I'm not fabricating anything. And again, these opinions are mine only. It does not reflect the FDNY. Um, <clears throat> but you as an individual, knowing that you come into a physically demanding job and you're, you want this career that requires physicality. For you not to be able to run a mile and a half under 12 minutes, you could do that in a six weeks training cycle if you never ran a day in your life. It just takes some effort and time. And if you don't put the time and effort, you're going to get hurt at the academy. There's only so much surviving you could do. And the amount of people that get hurt in our academy because they're unprepared is mind boggling. And what happens? They get sucked up into the system. They get recycled for another class. So for the remainder of their class, our class is 18 weeks. They say they get hurt in week four, and it was a legitimate injury that was hurt because of overtraining. They get put on a light duty situation. They're still hired. They're still on the clock. They still get a paycheck, but they're glorified janitors for the remaining of that class until the remaining of the next class, and then they have to pass the same fitness standards for that class. You fill that class, I'm hurt again, you get recycled. So there's guys that last four or five years behind the scenes, light duty, because they can't get their shit together and pass a standard test that requires a little bit of effort and training. That's what we're asking for, a little bit of effort and training. You're coming in to a department where we see people at their worst and we're running into burning buildings and for 10, 15 minutes of your time, you're doing everything in sequence, working as a team to be able to extinguish and save life and property and you can't do one push-up, 
one pull-up, you can run at an 8.30 mile pace for a required time, come in at 11.50, who cares? I mean, if you have some pride and self-dignity, you want to come in at 9.30, 10 minutes, you know, you want to be the, do the best you can, but some people want to do the bare minimum, and this job is not for the bare minimum. See, and, I, and that's what happens. I'm sorry? I was just going to say, I, I agree 100%, and, and I actually had a, a conversation with a Wisconsin female firefighter recently who she dropped, I think it was well over 100 pounds. She started off as a volunteer and had a realization, like, right now I'm the weakest link in my crew. And she went on this journey, she started mountain biking, then she started running, um, and then got into powerlifting and all these things. And, you know, she totally got that. And I told her, and again, let me preface this, this isn't, you know, like, oh, look at me, look what I can do. But I was getting ready to prepare for a local department in case this, I wasn't able to, to pay the bills of what I was doing with this and the book. Um, luckily enough, right last minute, everything came together, but so we had to do the CPAP and I was okay. 45 years old and that's always driven me crazy as well. I used to, my two departments ago, people would high five each other for finally getting 1019, you know, <laughs> and you know, I, I got 720 at 45 years old because like you said, no. lives depend on us. And I was, I tell people a lot. You know, there's, you know, would you want you rescuing you? And I, I totally think that's a great philosophy, but I like to take it a step further. Forget about me. It's not about me. How would you feel if your family died because the rescuer hadn't trained? They weren't fit enough. They weren't strong enough or they simply didn't have the skills. If, if, you know, if a plumber fucks up and they flood your house, it sucks, but you have insurance or whatever, you'll fix it. When we screw up, people die. So to say, oh, it's not fair, you're being too harsh from physical standards or, oh, it's not fair, don't hold me to this test, you know, year after year. Ask the lifeguarding community, the Navy SEALs, the PJs, the, the you know, all those groups. Do you think it's fair to have entry standards and annual tests? They're going to laugh in your face. But for some reason, police and fire, we found ourselves pulling this bar lower and lower and lower and lower rather than holding it where it fucking needs to be and telling anyone that wants to do this job and have the pride and honor of putting that badge on their chest, that's where the bar is. Either get up there or go do one of the other thousands of careers that will fit you better. It's that simple. That simple. 100%. I agree with you. You're preaching to the choir. And <clears throat> seeing it firsthand, it's, uh, it's, it's like I said, the, the only word I could use is vexing because it's, it's so disconcerting and... I, I get upset at, at the process. <clears throat> Nowadays, everything is web-based. They, they have what's called a candidate portal, and it tracks them throughout every process of the hiring process. When they give them dates, they give them information, and they give them, this is, this is a basic pedigree of workout routine you should be doing. Start doing this now so that when you get closer to your date, you can ramp things up, and then you get invited to what's called FAP, fitness, um, fitness Awareness Program. And that's something that the fitness unit runs. So we invite the candidates. So uh, three months before their academy starts, they get invited to The Rock two or three days a week, and they do a watered-down version of what a workout is. They also get to ask a shitload of questions. Hey, what, what is expected? What kind of workouts we do? Um, you know, how is life at the academy? What should I be preparing for? The attendance is abysmal to these training, and it's 100% free, it just requires time. Drive to the rock, 
spend an hour, work out with us. We're going to push you. Our workouts are a little intense, um, but this is what we expect of you. And then, especially day one, we crush them, crush them, but we do it with them. We don't just sit there and say, hey, give me 50 burpees, jump on this, 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 uh, um, this assault bike and give me uh, 10, 20 uh, air squats for time, go. No, we're doing it with them. We're leading them and we tell them and then we were there and they're even breathing hard and they're fucking dying and throwing up. But uh, you want to become a New York City firefighter? You're only 12 weeks out. You're not prepared. You should default, come back some, start training from now and come back nine months from now. Don't come back in three months because we're going to re remember your face and life for you is going to be miserable. But nobody listens. Everybody thinks, oh, I'm, I'm going to do good. They, they're going to pass me. It's not that hard. And the amount of people that fell is ridiculous. I think I think labeling is your issue, though, because you call it the fitness awareness program. Is that what you said? Yes. If you change that to wellness awareness program or WAP for short, then you'll have loads of people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good one. Good one. I like that. <laughs> you probably have a higher attendance if you, you had a, a WAP event at the FDMY. <laughs> Oh, that's, that's fantastic. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, my, my time at the fitness unit was pretty amazing. The, the, the camaraderie and the brotherhood I developed with the guys on the fitness unit is by none the best. It's, I would not change it for the world. I'm still a part of it. I'm not talking like it's the past. Um, my goal within the next few years is to move up, move up and rank and become the director of the fitness unit. And then I, I could retire after that. Cause technically I could retire in two years if I want, but I have a 15 month at home. I I'm in really good shape still. Uh, I still feel good. I'm not really putting too much damage on myself cause I'm not wearing bucket gear every tour I'm driving. So, you know, my, my longevity is, uh, is on point. I think with that, um, but I wish we could have an honest conversation with these candidates and hopefully some of them are listening to me now. You need to start working out now and you should start working out when you took that test. And that's the problem. People don't set goals and they say, well, you know what? I'll take, I could run, I could run a mile and a half in 12 minutes. That's easy until you get to the uh, half mile mark and you're running at a 6:30 pace because it's all adrenaline. And next, you know, you hit a wall because you haven't trained and it's game over for you. And next thing you know, you come in at 15 minutes and you have to go back downtown to take another test to be able to, uh, and that's another thing, James, and I'm a little leery of, of sharing this, um, but it's not a secret. It's all over the chat rooms, it's everywhere. There are people that come to the academy and I think it's harder the way they're doing it because all it takes is a little bit of effort and training, right? You could pass a mile and a half, in six weeks and less than that if you really deal with the suck the first few weeks and then you know find some good training uh, or a good training coach to get you there uh, i know a guy uh, that has matafuego training he's pretty good you should you guys should look him up but um <laughs> <laughs> but what guys do they fail the run they go downtown then they take a stairmaster test stairmaster test you have to before it was you had to keep your heart rate under a certain amount of time with a 50-pound vest and is either pass-fail with your heart rate. Now, you just stay on there for eight minutes. As long as you don't fall over or touch the banisters and maintain your balance, 
you pass that, you're good to go. So it's all heart and effort there. When a little bit of training could get you to pass the actual test, the problem that I see the job having and the reason why they don't establish this actual test, because they're trying to measure the METSs at 12 for the stress of the heart, is that there isn't a facility to house 100 Stairmasters with each instructor at one Stairmaster. The amount of overtime being paid there will be astronomical. So it wasn't cost effective for the job to do that. So I'm assuming they, they adapted this from the military where they do the mile and a half entrance run. I'm not sure where it came from. Correct me if I'm wrong. But the mile and a half under 12 minutes measures the same amount of stress in the heart. And, and we could do that with a larger group. Um, and it doesn't require that much manpower. And I'm, assu I'm assuming that's why. But the true test is that Stairmaster. That's the Stairmaster you do during the medical phase of, of your hiring process. You pass the Stairmaster, then you get to, so you take the written, then you take the CPAP. And for the CPAP, the FDNY has a 12-week free training program. Three days a week, you come to the Rock, we create a makeshift course with CPAP, and you get hands-on training, and you get uh, people that are quote-unquote trained or, or trainers. There are some people that don't know shit about fitness that are there, but they're there for the overtime. Who am I to judge? I'm not going to take money away from people's pockets, but um, you're there, you get some type of training. And it's for 12 weeks. You get to do the same test over and over, week after week for 12 weeks, so that by the time you get to CPAT, it should be a breeze, that people still fail. Absolutely crazy. On top, and I tell people, do not use CPAT and do not use the FAP as a training method. This is just... The, the fitness awareness program is that all, is what it is, is an awareness program to see where you are physically and ask the right questions to get a training program so you could do outside of here. You come here once or twice a week, but you still work out outside. And as the weeks progress, you're going to get better. And then when the academy starts, you don't have to worry about the fitness aspect of it. You can worry about learning this new language of firematics and learning all these tools and memorizing all these numbers because you're being tested and you have to take a written test. And if you're not well-rested or well-hydrated or have the proper nutrition, how are you going to pass the test? You know? And that's, this is the organized chaos that's happening that I see year after year. Just because they don't want to put a little bit of effort beforehand. And we tell them this. Hey, you need to start working out now. You need to work out four or five days a week. And if your fitness score is really bad, you cannot take any day off. Obviously, you need to work out smart. You know, you're not a crossfit athlete working out seven days a week doing a ridiculous wad. But... You need to work out smart. You need to recover. Hey, start doing some stretching. Get a foam roller. Get a lacrosse ball. Buy a 40-ounce water bottle. Drink water. Make sure that you're hydrated. Make sure that you're eating properly. You don't know what to eat? Google this shit. Go on YouTube. There are thousands of, of wannabe coaches on there that are giving information. Some of them great. Some of them don't. Sift through it. I'd rather do that than watching pictures on Instagram that most people do anyway. Spend 20, 30 minutes a day. Develop a routine. And this is just... I can't fathom why somebody can't do that because this is how my mind works. Everything that I'm telling you now is how my mind works. If I have something coming up, I'm going to do research, just like I did before I came on this podcast. I, I met you through uh, the guys from Map and Mago, and then I started doing research on you, and I purchased your book, and I loved it. I was like, I can't wait to talk to this guy. This is fucking amazing. I started digesting a lot of your, uh, a lot of your, your episodes. I was like, this is freaking awesome. And I don't want to sound... Um, uh, crazy or fanboyish, but your accent is freaking awesome. <laughs> it it kind of reminds me of, of the guy from uh, Mindspace. I, uh, I'm sorry, Headspace. I use Headspace every day, and the guy has a similar accent. 
and it puts me in a mood where I'm, I'm calm, cool, and collected. So I want to give you props for that. Well, I had Andy on the show, the, that guy. And, and fun, no way. funnily enough, we grew up like I don't know, 30 minutes away from each other. I never knew him then. But when, they, when I was interviewing him, I started getting sleepy. I'm like, why am I? Oh, <laughs> I know now because I listen to him when I meditate. So <laughs> Yeah, that's freaking awesome. I have to, I have to go back, backtrack that. You actually had a good friend of mine I did CrossFit with, uh, Jason. Um, he's a, a cop in, uh, in Yonkers. Oh, Jason Liska? I'm not Liska. Yeah. Um, uh, Jumpman J. No. What's his last name? Jumpman J. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He was the, the first episode because when I, when I went to the website and I saw, I was like, Jay is on here. I, we, him and I trained at, uh, uh, Gotham CrossFit in Yonkers together for, for many years. Absolute beast of a human and dope dude, man. I'm, I'm actually happy that you, you, you got him on the episode. It's, it's pretty dope. Yeah, no, he's amazing. Well, I want to touch on just one thing and then, um, then we'll go to the jujitsu before you run out of time. Um, but just to kind of highlight something that you were saying, you know, I, I use the CPAT to test my CrossFit. I use, you know, tough mudders or Spartan races to test my CrossFit. I'm like, and jujitsu too. If this is a good strength and conditioning program, it should be good. Now, I don't recommend that for a test that you're going to build your career on. So definitely do a couple of practice tests and see where you're at. But do you want a person on in your station? that thinks that exercise is too hard. You know Absolutely. what I mean? Yeah, I mean, so so take a step back, whether you're a candidate, or whether you've been on for a few years, if your mindset is, I don't want to work out as hard, are you an asset or a liability to that crew by that point? 100% li- liability. I mean, it's, and again, and this is where it gets lost in translation because the higher ups take it for granted that, oh, he's a New York City firefighter. I'm a New York City firefighter. I work out. I'm a type A personality. And not even the higher-ups. I'm just talking about me in general. I figure, hey, you want, you want to run into burning buildings? It takes a certain chemistry of an individual that's off a little bit to want to run into danger instead of running away from danger. And you want to do that? Oh, so you must be squared away. Okay, cool. Let's go. And then when you see them and they can't perform, you're like, so you're just wishing? This is a wishing board for you? This is real life, dude. Like, come on. And... Not that I don't want females on this job because I think females uh, can do this. I actually have a woman in, in, in my firehouse and she's badass. Um, so, but there are some that just wants the title and really can't perform and they get pushed along. I'm not giving any names, any particular situations, but I've seen it happen and they should not, they're a detriment. They're a detriment. If you want to be a firefighter and you're a female, you need to work twice as hard because they're not lowering standards for you. There is no all this lowering standards stuff that's been on the internet the last few years that we're we're not cursing at probies anymore. Is more calm, cool, and collected academy. In the last five years, is the hardest academy that's ever been in the fire department ever. Okay. And most people are biased to that, saying, "Oh, my academy was super hard." You know, my academy was 13 weeks and it wasn't as hard as the academy now that that we're instructing, and it's. Um, and it's a testament to those that actually passed the academy and passed with flying colors because their their uh, their fitness is legit because we put them through the ringer. And and just like I told you before, we do every rep with them. There is one instructor leading everything, and we go off for runs. Everybody runs, and it, there's not something where we have a cup of coffee and say, hey, give me 20 burpees, go. No, I'm saying down and up, and I'm doing every rep with you. Beautiful. Well, just quickly, just before we move on, what I meant to ask you, because obviously your your background is, is great for this. What are some of the movements that you love to use preparing those candidates? Because 
what I found, I love CrossFit. I think it's incredible. I, I still coach. Um, but, uh, what I found for me is that one thing that was missing in a lot of the programming was kind of weight over distance. So the push, pull, drag, carry, climb. Um, so do you incorporate any CrossFit movements and do you also do strongman stuff in the academy? Ooh, excellent questions. We do. Um, space is very limited for us. The academy that we have is we've outgrown it already for a few years. Um, you would think being the FDNY and being the best fire department in the world, we would have this monstrosity facility with great equipment and it's not the case. We have a small room. We built it over time. We got rid of all the regular global gym shit that was donated to us, that was taking up space. We made it more functional. We got a rogue rig in there. We have three assault bikes, three assault runners. We have a Jacob's ladder. We have treadmills. We have ski ergs. Um, we have bike ergs. We have rows, uh, dumbbells, bump. We have everything that you would find in a CrossFit gym. We have in a little facility. The problem is it's too small to house even 20 probies. So a lot of the workouts we do at the academy is outside. And depending on their score, their fitness score, the very first day. So the first day of the academy with fitness aspect, we do what's called the baseline test. This is something that's out there. So I'm not divulging anything that's not known. The baseline test is a mile and a half run under 12 minutes. Then they have a push-up test. Push-up test is at a cadence. So it's one rep every two seconds, an instructor is yelling down. We have a 10-pound dumbbell where the chest should hit the center of that dumbbell, and then they pop back up, and their arms are locked out. So it's one rep every two seconds, somebody's yelling down, and then they come up, and the other amount of reps completed. 30 is the bare minimum for that test. Anything under 30 is a negative score. Anything over 30 is, is a point. Then they have to do sit-ups. They have to do as many sit-ups as possible, as many correct sit-ups as possible, uh, under one minute. So somebody's anchoring the feet, their fingers are interlaced behind their head, uh, they sit up, their elbows touch their knee, they go back down, their knuckles touch the mat. So you have to do that. Your hips must maintain contact with the ground for the entire time. So your hips come off the ground, that's a no rep. Your fingers come undone, there's no rep. If you pity pat your elbows to your knees, that's a no rep. And you have somebody there keeping you honest. Then after that is a dead hand pull-ups. For, uh, I'm sorry, the for the sit-ups, Anything under 30, 30 is the bare minimum. Anything under 30 is a negative score. Anything over 30 is in, in the positive is one point. Then is the pull-ups. You have to do four dead hang strict pull-ups. Four is the bare minimum. So you get four, you get a zero. You get under four is two points negative. You get over four is two points in a positive. And that's the baseline score. So then we do that day one for all the 300 candidates. And depending on the overall average, that's how we program for the class. We already have a default program, but what's been happening is that we get overzealous with what we want to do because we like to do strongman stuff and, and all these, these crazy workouts, but people have a negative 75, a negative 120. So we have to program for the bottom 10%. And that would be unfair for the top 10% that are squared away, but then for them, they could focus more on learning um, the new language of, of firefighting and learning the tools, and they don't have to worry about getting hurt because they're already physically capable of doing the academy. So they're just, they're just having fun. Those are the guys that you see laughing and having a good time at the academy. Then you see the t bottom 10% that are having the worst time ever. They're getting yelled at by the drill instructors, and that's one of the things uh, that I'm pretty proud of. We have these 
ridiculous sharks as drill instructors. I love those guys to death. They're the fucking best. Hands down, the best guys ever. And they keep everybody honest. I'm even afraid when they start barking. Like, Is he talking to me? Let me, let me stand at attention because these guys are legit. They have a great staff over there. Um, besides the fitness, you know, obviously I'm biased by that. But the, the, the DI staff is, is pretty awesome. Um, <clears throat> so based on that result of the baseline test is how we um, create a program. And a lot, t- 10 times out of 10, the last few classes, we have to water things down and make it a linear program. So we start from the bottom, basic jumping jacks, bodyweight squats, but we do that over and over and over for 90 minutes. So we, so I'm going to give you one workout that we do. It's WAD one. Uh, I'm sorry, WAD two. It's a very simple workout. It is uh, 50 jumping jacks, 40 lunges, 30 butterfly sit-ups, 20 supermans, 10 push-ups, and then because I'm a I'm a maniac, I like to add five burpees at the end of that. And then we do that one round. We let them rest, hydrate, and then we do another round. And we have them for 90 minutes or so. And we do that over and over and over and over again. Not to mention that the drill instructors melt the earth uh, under them prior to them coming to a class to class or coming to fitness. So they're doing easily two or 300 push-ups and, and other catastatic stuff throughout the day before getting to PT that we crush them. And then they have to go do uh, engine ops or truck ops and have to do a search or put up a ladder or, or do things like that or do a live burn. So it's a very physical academy. And we try to explain this to individuals. And for some reason, it goes in one ear out the other and they come in unprepared. And what happens when you're prepared? You get hurt. You get hurt, you get recycled, and you took a spot for somebody that was really in great shape. They were just a poor test taker that their, their number was a few numbers after yours. And they lost their opportunity after waiting another year to get into the academy class because you were selfish and you took that spot. And that's why I go ballistic when I'm on the platform and I see people that didn't. And one, one of the first questions is, a, there's, a, there's a very prevalent instructor in, on the fitness unit. He's there right now. His name is Jimmy Carino. You actually should look him up. Um, he's, he's, a, he's a great resource. I'll, I'll, I'll put you in contact with him. He's my, my wordsmith. He's, uh, he's a, a, I think he went to college for writing or something like that. Or Anyway, he has a good stronghold on the vernacular of, of the English language. And, and he could uh, put words together in such a way you're like, what in the fuck is he saying? <laughs> it sounds amazing. It sounds like a, like a movie uh, producer script when he talks. But he is one of the meanest instructors to the probies on God's green earth. And he is known by everybody and hated. After every class, they ask the probies, which instructor you want to give a bullet to, meaning, you know, you want to, you know, X off. And he gets most of the bullets all the time from the fitness unit. Um, I, I just mentioned that because he is, he blurs the line between um, fitness unit and, uh, and drill instructor. Um, I love the guy to death though, man. He's what we need in the, in the fire academy. Um, but we hold them to a standard. So if they don't meet the standard, we're like, how is it that we're wasting our time with you? And on top of that, James, and I know I'm talking a lot, but I'm just trying to give you as much information with a short period of time. No, you're I, good. Are you good? I promise. All right. Um, we have what's called the re- remedial class. So if you are in the bottom 
you get invited after your day is over to come work out with the fitness unit for another hour. So this is a long day of not only trying to memorize stuff and regurgitate it, but working out. And how people pass that is just a, a testament to what their uh, goals are. But to avoid all that, just work out before the academy, come in, you are going to get beat up, you are going to get hurt um, somewhat, but if you know how to recover, you should be fine. Um, but you want to spend the most of your time learning and passing these exams because let's face it, being a firefighter is not rocket science, but how they get you is the wording on the exam. And if you're too exhausted to read a certain word that is either up rather than down and you pick the up and you're wrong, you get the, the quiz is only 20 questions. The midterm is 50. The final is a hundred. It's only so many questions you could get wrong before your average starts falling. And if you don't meet a 75, in your overall average, you're done, regardless of how physically shaped you are. So these are the things that we try to tell the probies um, when, we're, when we're at the academy. And, and I, I try to, I try to, and I don't want to make this about race. And I know I mentioned that before. Um, I just felt that uh, when I walked into my firehouse that it was like that. Um, nowadays, it's not like that. Um, the, the, by force, in a lawsuit, the the department has become more diverse, and rightfully so. We should, you should have a representation of the neighborhoods you, you protect in the firehouse. That would also create some, um, some excitement for the younger people that see somebody of color or see a woman. There's a woman firefighter? And that opens the pathways of, hey, maybe I could do that. What does it take? And that's, that's all we're asking for. All right. Well, then the, the last area before we uh, kind of go to the closing questions, tell me about how you found jujitsu and then tell me about FDNY grappling. Awesome. That's a good segue. Um, actually, that's what I was thinking about. Uh, there was a speech that I tell the probies on day one of the academy. Um, I memorize this from uh, Johan Wolfgang von Goethe. And uh, he created this speech. And it's one of the things that I um to the probies on day one when i'm on the platform and i'm leading the workout with them um if you mind i could i want to share that please so we we adapted this uh warm-up um from the army in 2015 the fdy army and the fdy the fdy and the army signed a co-training um and I, i warned you before that my mind just this is the way my mind works. And this is the way I, I kind of freestyle with the probies and they love it because I'm, I'm honest and raw and I don't really, none of this stuff is uh, memorized. It's just, I just free, free flow. Um, so we do the prep, preparation drill with the probies and it's preparation drill is 10 exercises at a four count cadence. And that's how we warm up the probies. We prime them for whatever physical uh, workout we're going to do prior to whether it's a run or just a workout in general. Um, but before, before we get the prep drill, we do what's called extender formation. So we extend them so they have enough space between them and their neighbor and they could do a whatever workout and they're staggered. So we go through that whole sequence and they always fuck it up because it's simply it's just following instructions. And when you're stressed the fuck out and you have people yelling at you, you can't figure anything out. You can't figure up from down or left from right. And it's just it's fun for us to see as instructors. Um, and it's, it's what makes it 
what, what makes it great um, for us. But then, so you got to think about the platform is the back part of a fire truck. They cut a fire truck in half and the bed, um, I think is, yeah, the, the, the back part of, the, uh, of an engine is what they created a platform. They just put rubber mats and a platform on there. So we stand up on top of that and we lead the, 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 the class on whatever the primary instructor is. And you have um, secondary instructors that walk around and correct people that have incorrect forms and things like that. So after I send the formation, I say this particular speech that I memorized. I saw it. I was away on a trip and one of the drill instructors that I was away with showed me this quote. And uh, I like to partake uh, with some alcohol socially. And uh, I read this under the influence and it hit me like a ton of bricks because it is something that I want to practice as a person and I try to every day. I fail every day, but I try. Um, and it goes like this. I have come to the frightening conclusion that I am the decisive element. It is my personal approach that creates the climate. It is my daily mood that sets the weather. I possess tremendous power to make life miserable or joyful. I can be a tool of torture or an instrument of inspiration. I could humiliate or humor, hurt or heal. In all situations, it is my response that decides whether a crisis is escalated or de-escalated, or if a person is humanized or dehumanized. If we treat you as you are here today, we will make you worse. But if we treat you as you ought to be, we will help you become what you're capable of becoming. And then I go through my freestyle of all of you came to Randall's Island. You walk through these gates with high aspirations of becoming New York City firefighters. You want this job? Well, come get it. We as your instructors are the gatekeepers. We expect 100% effort 100% of the time. Give us anything less and life for you will be miserable. Discipline is freedom. Be disciplined or be disciplined. And then I start to work out from there. And it varies from class to class, but that, that, that one, uh, the first half of it is where I try to fire people up. And I, and I get made fun of by my colleagues in the fitness unit because I could be, as you all know, I'm a little long-winded. But in between workouts, and depending on how much they vex me, I would do 25, 30 burpees, and then I'll stop and I'll talk. Help them recover, and then boom, we do another 25, 30 burpees, or we do the workout. And uh, I'm a little proud of this. The last, not this class is in there. There's a class in there now. It's only 150. They're at their halfway point of their, I think, week nine of the academy. Um, my first class is 2015 that I'm not a full-time member of. Kind of cuts me a little deep, but... I was asked to go back to my firehouse to be a senior guy, and I can't disappoint my captain. You know, he's, he's a great man. Um, but the previous class, before COVID hit, in one, uh, in one session, 90 minutes, I did 436 burpees with them. And uh, I, I crushed them. And it was just because they, they, they pissed me off with how, how complacent they got uh, throughout the academy. They, they developed habits and they got through stuff and they started slacking off a little bit. So we had to turn up the heat. And uh, that's, that's where I was. Okay, so going back to your question. Thank you for appeasing me and, and allowing me to go on these tangents. It's, it's awesome.
Um, I don't really get to do this much other than playing the persona of a fitness instructor, and I talk to Kobe. I actually also lecture them. Um, oh, that's what I wanted to tell you. You just reminded me. The FDNY started this uh, mental preparedness initiative program. So they are talking about mental health. Um, and it's something that uh, has been going on the last uh, six now, I would say four years. Um, there's a guy from a uh, rescue company, Jason uh, Breslin, I believe. Uh, hopefully I didn't get his name wrong. But he started uh, this initiative. And it's just talking about the mental aspect in the job, um, how to take a tactical reset, uh, how to uh, censor yourself so you could perform better, how to recover properly. And this is all the aspects that he put together. It wasn't, I don't want to say it wasn't received well. People just that have old school mentalities think that this is uh, hipsterish and soft. And so some people gravitate to it, some people don't. It's still growing, it's still in, in, in its infant stages. Um, but we at the academy do it with the probies. And I'm one of the guys that talk about a tactical breath with the probies. Um, I'm not sure if um, if you were given, I, I wrote an article for the FDNY magazine that got published and it talks about a tactical breath. And I'm not sure if that was shared with you, but I could, I could email it to you after this conversation if you haven't read it yet. But uh, it talks about a, a tactical breath um, and how to reset yourself once you hit that hole. And, you know, like when we compare to athletes where um, some baseball players, before they get hit the batting, you know, before they go up to bat, they do certain routines to get themselves. They either pat their helmet, they reset their, their, their gloves, they, re, you know, re-velcro their gloves. They hit the bat in the bottom of their feet. They just create routines to center themselves waiting for that pitch. And that's called the tactical reset. And we try to incorporate that into firefighting. When you go to a job and you're supposed to perform and you're lost in the chaos of people yelling, people hanging out the window, and you're just stuck in that zone, how do you reset yourself to make sure your tasks are done? Because we work together as a team. Everybody on the edge of the truck has a certain task to do. And if your task doesn't get done, it kind of uh, delays the process of, of extinguishment and saving life. So everybody's job is crucial. There's not one job that's more important than the other. So what happens when we when we put the probies through that? We do like a makeshift fire and we, you know, we do some um, hands-on stuff where we force them to throw their gear on and most guys forget their glove or they drop their glove and the, the rig pulls off and leaves them behind. They have to run behind the rig, the helmet falls off and it's just, what do you do in that situation? And that's what we try to, that's what we try to instill them. We have three sessions with them throughout the 18 weeks, and we talk about that. Um, and also we talk about uh, how to recover. And I wish we had time to talk about sleep, but unfortunately, we don't have so much time with them. We have so much little time with them that a lot of topics are overlooked. All right. Well, obviously, you were doing all the strength conditioning in The Rock and then obviously being a firefighter yourself. But Another side, another kind of string to your bow, as it were, is grappling. So tell me about FDMY grappling and, and the jiu-jitsu side. Okay. Um, well, it's a brand new society, I suppose. We were recently, uh, within the last two years, uh, were sanctioned by the FDMY legal team to utilize the name FDMY in front of grappling. Uh, there was a guy by the name of uh, jo Joseph Aviles. 
another guy by the name of Dave Harris. These are two guys. Joe is a black belt in jiu-jitsu and a black belt in judo. Dave is a blue belt in jiu-jitsu and a black belt in uh, judo. And you have myself in a purple belt in uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So we all sat down and decided to create something uh, to be able to uh, have a different outlet for the members. Uh, I'm not sure how many members actually train outside of this group. Like I said, we're still fairly new. We're getting a lot of, uh, through social media, we get a lot of people showing interest. Uh, and this is just through um, FDY. So this includes EMS as well as firefighters. Um, we're actually opening the door to retired members now. There's a lot of retired members that uh, have picked up the hobby and, and kind of want to learn. So we're opening the gate there. Uh, and what we're trying to do is pretty much just uh, promote um, a challenge for the members, something different. Um, I think it has uh, major values in life uh, doing jiu-jitsu. Like I said, for me, I get humbled every day. I uh, train at uh, with JT Torres at Essentials uh, BJJ in Hartsdale, New York. Um, JT is a world champion. You guys can look him up. He's If you don't know about JT already, but... He's a beast by itself, and um, he uh, makes light work of most of the guys there, which is cool. But that being said, is the the humbling aspect of it. I fancy myself somebody that's in pretty decent shape, and I can handle my own. And then when you go on the mats and you get handled and you get steamrolled, it, it just opens the light to the levels of jujitsu, and uh, it keeps you humbled. And that's what I like about it. It shows the true hardships. In just a three-minute match, as, as uh, sometimes our matches go on uh, six, seven minutes, depending on the type style of training that we do. But uh, that's what I use as a advocate for members to try something new, get out of their comfort zone. Because you're not sure what you're made of until you remove yourself from your comfort zone, and that's where you figure out what fatigue really does to you. And jiu-jitsu outside of CrossFit is another uh, facet uh, that you can really find out true values of yourself and what you're really made of. Absolutely. When they say what fatigue makes cowards, I think is one of the, the phrases. And I, I've, I've been there, you know, I've, I've wanted to tap. Well, I have tapped, you know, many, many times. And even in CrossFit workouts, same thing. You know, there's days where you have that fight and days where you kind of give up and you know in your heart of hearts which one was which. Right. And uh, I mean, so right now, as a group post-COVID, if I could really say post-COVID, things are getting back to quote-unquote normal-ish. Um, COVID really put a damper on the uh, training as a group. Um, most guys, uh, because of work, and work has been insane, uh, manpower issues and overtime and things like that. Members also have a life outside of the firehouse, uh, marriage, kids. So we're trying to meet at least uh, once a month with all the members. We have a group of five or six guys that we meet uh, a few times a week. These are the guys that like to compete. Like I said, we just got back from San Diego and the U.S. Police and Fire Games. Um, we had five members we all placed uh, in that, which was a good segue for me. I haven't competed in over, oof, I'm going to say since 2013. It was my last competition. Uh, and I, this is something in a master's division where it's something I want to do. Um, so that's, that's where we're at now. So we're trying to facilitate the goals of the members. Uh, utilizing the FD, FDNY brand and the grappling team and uh, seeing where that takes us. And, and that's uh, that's where we're at now. Well, it's something that I've talked about in 
previous interviews, there are many, many times I can think of, especially ironically in the back of a rescue, an ambulance, where, you know, I've had to kind of lean into a little bit of the, the knowledge that I had and in, in restraining someone without, you know, beating them up. <laughs> so, um, whether it was you or whether it's, uh, you know, other firefighters that you've spoken to, what are the, some of the, the examples of where, um, whether it's actually doing jujitsu or just maybe the, uh, the, the confidence that you have because you have a skill set that you've applied into the world of firefighting? Oh, I mean, in my, my approach with everything uh, is with that. Uh, it's almost the kind of uh, fake it till you make it type deal. And I always use the example of having command presence. And even being the fact that I wanted to become an, a, a police officer all my life, I figured uh, I would pay attention to all the interactions that I had with police officers and how they walk and how they carry themselves. And I quickly realized there's so many external variables to this concept because it really depends on the individual and, and what style of training they do. You know, you automatically assume when somebody is an officer or a firefighter that they have their shit together. Oh, this is a, a alpha individual that has this super extraordinary job and they're supposed to always be on point and you quickly realize that that's not necessarily true. Um, so for me, in, in my situation, I knock on wood, uh, thank God if that's something you believe in, uh, never had to utilize my skill set on anybody, whether it's a confrontation with a patient or anything else. Um, to be honest, the, the closest we've got to, um, there is a comeback in the Bronx with uh, all these drugs. It's, it's kind of scary. Um, it almost reminiscent of the, of the, of the early 90s um, with the, the people in the neighborhood, the, the poor neighborhoods using drugs and getting stepped on you know, stepped on drugs that isn't the best quality and they're using it for escape and unfortunately for them they're not really escaping anything you know it's just it's just garbage stuff they're putting in their system that has uh bad effects and you know you kind of hear this whole superhuman strength type thing but i know for me i've never experienced where i had to restrain anybody but i know that if i had to i'll do it uh without without an issue i mean it's not anything that i'm thinking about Obviously, you want to make sure that our memberships, uh, our members in the back step are safe, and you want to make sure you're safe and others are safe. So, um, uh, unfortunately, I can't bring you any highlight in that fashion because I, I'm not going to make up a story that never happened. That's not how I roll. But <laughs> uh, as as far as uh, as far as that, I've I just take the confidence that you get from jujitsu and the humbling aspect, and make sure that I have command presence. And even if somebody pumps their chest, or you know, you could tell by body language if anybody at any point does anything you'll be able to diffuse the situation and that's what i utilize that for most in late march april and may even in june we've had uh, situations where we're walking into people's homes and we're doing cpr and everybody there's death everywhere um and that's the uh that's where the command presence come into play uh and being confident in in what you're walking into and not losing your cool that's one of the things that uh you know fdi i don't want to say fdny or the training itself i'm not sure i can't really say because i haven't really been in a student capacity in a very long time so i'm not sure if that's something that really touch on these days maybe they do um but what i take from the confidence from jujitsu and life in general is the calm, cool, and collectiveness 
being able to be squared away and being able to be direct where you're delivering. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's interesting. I mean, the the command presence is definitely a thing, and we talk a lot with police officers the same way. You know, that have jujitsu background that are in great shape. They're a deterrent, you know, and they're the ones that go hands on far less than some of the deconditioned officers. But I remember a very specific um, call. I mean, there were multiple where I had to use it, but um, it was a super athletic, super strong young man, probably I think he's about 18, 19, um, who was diabetic. So his blood sugar was probably in the you know 20s and was super combative. And again, he didn't do anything wrong. He wasn't, you know, he didn't know that he was fighting the paramedics, but we had to basically restrain him to the point where the one medic could get an IV and then give him uh, D50, the sugar. Um, and then after he was the nicest guy in the world, you know, so that's the thing that we have is, you know, whether it's a post head injury, whether it's, you know, like you said, some sort of drug induced psychosis, whether it's uh, hypoglycemia. You know, we have post, uh, post-dictal, the seizures. There are many medical presentations where the person's not trying to be a dick, but you have to give them time to come out of whatever it is they're in. And in the meantime, still protect yourself and restrain yourself. So you're not like, you know, throwing on an arm bar or anything, but you're understanding again the, you know, the, the leverage and the, um, the mechanics so that you're able to hold them down without them hurting themselves or someone else. Yeah. I mean, like I said, the only thing that comes close to us uh, doing anything or trying to um, diffuse the situation is guys that are, you know, smoking this K2 stuff or, you know, um, we have to use a lot of um, guys on, on heroin. We have to use uh, Narcan a lot. And sometimes they come out of that and they're very combative. You know, we just got to listen, we're here to help you. Somebody down 911, somebody cares for you. So we're not here to do anything. We're not the cops. You know, you could tell us what's going on. Um, and now with these new rules and guidelines, we have to let them go. If they get up and walk away, that's on them. There's nothing we can do about it. We can't restrain them. We can't, even with a visually intoxicated individual. Um, and now in, in New York in the summertime, you know, there's a lot of uh, partying, especially uh, after everybody's being locked down for a little while. So there's, the, the South Bronx is pretty interesting as far as uh, block parties and people uh, engaging in that fashion. So we do get a lot of that. Uh, the good thing for us is that everybody loves firefighters. I mean, there's a, a rare far few in between that people dislike us, but um, we we have that to our advantage that we could diffuse a situation. And it all depends on the individual, how you approach somebody. And, and that's what I try to tell my young guys that, you know, you need to have some tact, you need to have some compassion, bedside manner when you approach somebody. Whether is we're getting called for a toothache or a st- a stomach pains, but just remember we're there, we're getting paid, and we're issuing a service. So uh, you have to keep that in the back of your head to be able to um, uh, provide that service. Even if we get 10 calls of nonsense, you know, and I'm, I'm, I've been guilty of it when I worked the back step and losing my patience with some people and knowing how people don't utilize 911 correctly, but at the end of the day, we're getting paid for, and that without that, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have a job, to, to be honest. So I have to keep reminding myself every day about that and then remind my, my junior guys that I lose their cool with that. Absolutely. Well, just with your perspective in, in New York, and I want to shift to one other area before we kind of close out, um, the media 
the the mainstream media is absolutely awful at dividing us and you know giving the extremes of the left and right voices and it seems like the whole country is at war a number of messages i get from overseas oh my god i saw this happening it must be terrible over there and i'm like no it's don't fucking believe yes that's going on but that's an absolute minute you know percentage of the pie of, of americans the 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 image we get is that Cops are being harassed all over the place. Everyone's anti-cop. Um, of course, there was some incidents that were wrong. You know, some some few incidents where absolutely there was a mistake and someone lost their life, and it was it was horrific. What are you seeing in general over the whole of the area that you work and live in when it comes to law enforcement? Well, we anytime anybody generates a nine one one call. Uh, we, the, the fire department, gets the first call first. So we're, we're CFR. So we get the initial call. We get there first. And I'm assuming that's citywide for monetary or stats or whatever. They want us to get to the call as soon as possible to establish basic life support. Uh, along with us, PD comes on every medical call, every call we get. They Even on fires, PD shows up. Um, one of the issues that a lot of people have, and I think is the the few bad apples that uh, that PD has, and it doesn't even matter New York and every city, um, the heightened uh, via social media of this out there now that people feel that uh, the cops are overstepping their boundaries. And unfortunately, and what I tell, um, and what I'm going to teach my son is always lead with respect. If you lead with respect, you always get the best outcome. Even if a guy is acting like an asshole, he probably had a bad day. So now being in my, in my later stage in life, I'm able to kind of step out of the situation and say, hey, maybe he had a shitty call before he pulled me over. Or um, maybe he going through a divorce or maybe his kids are sick or anything. Maybe he worked 36 hours straight and he's tired and he's forced to be here. And that's why he's acting like an asshole. So uh, unfortunately, other people outside don't really think this way. Um, and there are some instances where PD uh, are being, I don't want to say attacked, but people are defending themselves, quote unquote, because it really isn't anything to defend. But I think if there's any officers listening to this, they're from New York, I think the same thing, like I was mentioning before, with command presence and attack. Instead of yelling at somebody, why don't you say, hey, can you do me a favor and do this? There's certain ways and certain deliveries that you could do to be able to make the situation go your way as opposed to, hey, you asshole, move over here. Why, why are you stupid? Why are you doing this? That generates a response, and nine times out of ten, that response is negative. So if you're able to uh, generate a positive response, then you yourself will be able to have a positive outlook on certain things. But then again, that goes with certain individuals, and everybody's different. And everybody's stress level when they respond to the stress is very different. So that's what uh, that's the conversation we need to be having, to be honest with you. Yeah. Now, are you having a general anti-police sentiment throughout the city, though, or is it still more of an extreme case that's being portrayed on TV as what is quote unquote everyone is thinking? To be honest, I don't. If, if I'm going to give you my perspective, I don't see it, um, and I only. I, my firehouse coverage just the South Bronx, uh, where things get bad pretty quick. Um, and I'm not really seeing that. We never even had riots in the Bronx when the whole riot stuff was happening. Um, so it was just, uh, it, it, we are in a, in a neighborhood where there's is high crime. I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. That's where we are. Um, 
because we don't respond to crime. The only time we respond to a call where it's crime is probably like a gunshot wound and somebody gets shot. They call us and that happens a lot more than what the media portrays. Um, but uh, we really don't see and I have not seen in my time, 16 years, uh, that be at five uh, were at the fire academy. But I'm, I live in the Bronx and I'm, I'm born and raised there. Um, I really do not see the level of disrespect like you saw at the riots and things like that. I don't think that's happening. It's not that prevalent. Uh, most people, I would assume, have respect or aren't doing anything wrong. So they don't have a, a reason to um, fear the cops. My thing is that when the cops speak with a certain tone and you're born and raised in the streets and want to hold your ground, that's where the conflicts come into play. So if the cops would change their delivery and change their attack, I think that would uh, de-escalate a lot of the things that are, are happening now that people catch on YouTube and, or oh, look at this cop did this or that cop did that or, or this cop you know, shot somebody. What happened prior to? Who was the one that escalated the situation? Because when I put on the uniform, I'm there to de-escalate and to help and serve and protect uh, life and property. That's, that's the number one goal. So I think throughout the conversations we've been having, everything has been highlighted as far as uh, sleep, rest, and recovery. Uh, if how these officers are relieving their stress uh, and firefighters, everybody, everybody that, that puts on a uniform, whether it be a nurse or doctor, whatever the case may be. Um, also, uh, how well they're uh, eating or uh, their nutrition, their hydration, everything comes into play when it, when, when it involves that. Um, so we, we as individuals that wear the uniform are responsible for that. And that's where I think the conversation should start. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure who's having that conversation. Hopefully I'm not the only one having that conversation. Uh, but it's something that we should take pride on uh, how we interact. And even on duty and off duty. I've never, I could take pride in this. I've never had a street fight where I had to, you know, I've had arguments at a bar when somebody bumps into me. But the way I diffuse that situation, hey, listen, my bad. Even if it wasn't my fault, do you want a shot? What do you drink? Drink tequila? Vodka, whiskey, you let me know, I'll buy you a shot, my bad. And that's the way I diffuse that. I don't want to walk around like, yo, dude, I could choke you out with your T-shirt. You kidding me? You know, who, who do you think you are? That's one of the things I don't want to be like. And that, again, goes with the individual with his or her command presence and his or her experience. Yeah, you could buy them 10 shots and they'll remember you the next day when they're vomiting <laughs> in the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Well, no, but that's a unique perspective. And then you talked about all the things, you know, th that we have, making the whole human being. And I obviously like to talk a lot about the environment as well as it's set up for us to succeed or fail and, you know, lack of sleep and mandatory overtime. Of course, that's going to increase the likelihood of a poor decision in law enforcement too. You sent me um, an article. So this would be a great thing to kind of finish on before we go to some closing questions on breath work. Now, not only is that important for deregulation of the nervous system and, you know, maintaining that, that composure, but one thing that's, it's not really discussed very much, but when you think about it, when you and I go into a building, the only air on planet Earth is on our back. So one part of that is obviously don't be a lazy piece of shit and fill your tank to 39, for Christ's sake. I used to see that all the time. You know, they've got as much damn air as you can get in that thing. But secondly, obviously, it's controlling 
your stress level and your aerobic capacity and and actually breathing as well. So talk to me about, you know, breath work in your eyes and, and where you apply those principles. I started diving into this once I joined the fitness unit and I kind of wanted to uh, utilize whatever facets are out there. And there's, I mean, there's tons of information out there, tons of people doing different style of breath work. Uh, but I felt that uh, starting to use meditation and, and using Headspace, uh, I love Headspace. I utilize it every day. I utilize it be- you know, before this call. Uh, it makes me a different individual, more calm, cool, and collected. And I'm going to be 100% honest, during COVID and what I was going through, I wasn't using Headspace. And I was a bit of an asshole. Uh, not necessarily to the public or my coworkers. My wife feel the most brunt of that short temper with her. And then once, once I start seeing that I'm short temper with her, I'm like, wait a second, I'm off, I'm wrong. Let me, let me bring it back. Let me spend 10, 20 minutes and kind of catch up. But one of the things that Headspace don't do uh, is the actual breathing itself. And that's one of the things that I try to, not that they don't really, I don't want to say they don't do, because I don't want them to be upset with me, even though I, I don't really uh, make zero money off them. I've been uh, advertising uh, them and uh, been an advocate of them uh, with the probies. Like the last 3,000 probies that I helped graduate, they all heard about Headspace and I tell them about it. I even tell them to download it for the, 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 the Fire Academy. But one of the things that isn't touched on is how to utilize the breath and how to actually breathe. They just tell you, you know, breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth. You can have your eyes open or closed. You can sit back, posture, and it's a big deal. And, and when you're in meditation, that really isn't. Uh, but utilizing the diaphragm, the, the, the lower part of the lungs, the most oxygen-rich part of the lungs, and uh, taking a big deep breath, uh, big belly like Santa Claus. And when you exhale, you want to hide your belly, like uh, pretend like you're at the beach. Somebody sexy walks by, you want to show off your abs. That's how you want to bring your belly button to your back. And that's kind of what I let the probies, uh, I paint the picture for them as a metaphor so they could uh, try to practice that. And it doesn't happen overnight. This takes practice. And that's what I tell them. So the article that I uh, sent you was, uh, what is a tactical breath? And that is uh, able to kind of break that tunnel vision that happens when you're first fresh on the job and you're on the rig. And the officer looks back and says, hey, guys, we're going to work. And that happens. Um, back in the day with the old school rigs, there used to be a, um, a uh, what's the name, fiberglass style window between the back step and the, and, the off- and the officer. So the officer used to reach back and bang three times on that fiberglass. And that means that we're going to work. Um, but now there's a big open cabin. So he just looks back and say, hey, guys, we're going to work. And that's when things should start. Uh, if you have routines developed, that's where it should start coming into play. And taking those deep breaths will be able to help you focus. Uh, get Because naturally, even it happens to me, my heart rate escalates. Um, my respirations also. You get nervous. Good nervous. But you don't want to be that guy that fucks up. And that's pretty much the, the, the end all be all. You know, you want to be on, on your A game, even if you're hungover, you know, guys come work at 24 after a party and things like that. So, uh, or they probably had uh, 64 ounces of coffee instead of water. You know, there's a lot of things that play into account working at 24. Um, but uh, back to the article, the, the breath itself is to help center you, engage you so that you won't forget your helmet, you won't forget your gloves. Or if you have um, uh, control, 
and and us here in New York, the control guy controls the length, though, whether it's to a tenement or, or a private dwelling or the projects. He he is the one that's the the um, the middleman between the chauffeur and the and the officer, making sure there's no kinks in the line, making sure that you stretch the amount of lengths and let the chauffeur know, hey, we have eight lengths of so and so here, uh, and then the chauffeur will be able to give them proper pressure. So there's a lot that's involved in this short period of time that you have to be on your A game with. And if you practice the breath, and I'm gonna let you know right now, I'm gonna be 100 percent honest, there isn't a lot of guys doing this. And even we we plant the seeds with the probies. And MPI, like I was mentioning before, is out in the field, but not a lot of guys are gravitating to it. It's only, unfortunately, when they hit rock bottom and, you know, they're uh, in substance abuse or, you know, they get a divorce, things like that, or they get an MI or something happens to them where they need help and the counselor would nine times out of ten direct them to breathing. And this is something that, like I was mentioning before, I don't want to be a Jehovah's Witness with this information and no disrespect to any Jehovah's Witnesses. But it's not like I'm knocking on people's door and say, hey, you need to breathe, you need to breathe, you need to breathe. You know, I'm asking guys, how do you, how do you cool down at night? Like, what, what are you doing? Like, how are you calm, cool, and collecting now besides sleeping or, or taking pills or, or smoking a cigarette, which a lot of guys do. So that, that decompression is, is, is a major part of how to be a, a proper person. And that's what, in, in a nutshell, with the article, what I'm beginning to talk about, because in... Even in movies, if you look at any war movie, they pan into the sniper. And before the sniper takes a shot, what does he do? Take a breath. He's trying to lower his heart rate to pull the trigger in between his heartbeat to get a direct shot. And that's, that's him or her being grounded, being calm, cool, and collected so they could, uh, they could do their job. And, and that's, where, that's where the whole being a tactical athlete comes from. Because whether we want to accept it or not, all firefighters are tactical athletes and they need a train, rest, recover, uh, eat like a tactical athlete. And unfortunately, the, the onus is on them um, and it's up to the individual to be able to make that strive for themselves. Yeah, well, you mentioned Headspace. I've shouted from the rooftops about them for years as well. I should try to get them as a sponsor because I think that you know this would be a great place to bring them to the first responder community. Um, but, you know, I, I used to do box breathing on the way to, you know, cardiac arrest or a fire or something. Because as we talked earlier, you know, that flow state, you have to have that, that, um, you know, really that parasympathetic almost. You need to be in that, that headspace. So then when you got the stress and you're leaning and you're training, that's when you get in the flow state. If you're already in that super high stress sympathetic state and you get on scene, now you're that dude that's a chicken with his head cut off running around, you know, looking for someone to push him into action. So yeah, I mean, whether it's deregulating after a fire, whether it's, you know, getting into that kind of flow state on the way to a fire or whether, as we said, you know, you find yourself a little disoriented in a fire and be able to get that breathing down as low as you can because you don't know how long you're going to be sitting there relying on that tank. So there again, there's no downside to this kind of breathing practice. And, and what, I, what I preach to the guys also, especially in probing school, is that, like I was mentioning before, it's not going to happen overnight. So as you practice every day to put yourself in that flow state, that's how you're practicing for that one breath that you take to get yourself out of that tunnel vision. Um the practice will be able to enforce that one breath so you could create your habits. Like I, I like to clap my hands or I like to hit myself in the helmet. All right, let's go. Or hit myself in the chest. All right, let's go to work. I'm in a different perspective now being a seated chauffeur. I'm actually driving. So my stress level is actually skyrocketing. 
And I have to keep myself in, in the constant flow within the 24 hours in a headspace where I have to be calm, cool, and collected because I have to move with a sense of purpose with this ginormous engine uh, battling traffic in New York where nobody gives a fuck about lights and sirens. Everybody cuts you off. Nobody gives two shits. And they look at you like you're doing something wrong. And I'm like, dude, we're responding to an, an emergency, you know? So we have to, I have to be aware of that. Then I have to make sure that I have a positive water source once we get something. And once we hear the dispatcher saying, hey, there's numerous calls, you know, we're going to something. Then it's like, oh, shit. I have to make sure that I know the address. I have to make sure that I know where my hydrant is. And all that happens through experience and time, um, and uh, especially in your first two area. Uh, but I had this, this senior guy at my firehouse. Uh, he since retired. His name is Richie B., uh, very famous in Engine 73. This guy is like the chauffeur extraordinaire for the FDNY. He's like pretty amazing. But I remember when I first got on the job, he asked me, because um, I was lucky enough when I graduated the academy, I was only, I lived 10 blocks away from my firehouse. I was assigned and I was walking distance. So I was like, never needed a car. I had a car, but to go to work, I never had a transportation issue. For the first 10 years of my life, it was just that, that easy. So Richard B figured out, uh, that I lived in, in our, our secondary area. And he asked me, he was like, what, what block you live on? And I was like, I live on, uh, back then I live on this block called Eagle Avenue. He was like, oh yeah, there's three hydrants on there. There's, uh, there's one three quarters in the block. And then, you know, 800 feet, there's another one and down the block. And I was like, how the hell does this guy know the hydrants? And I was like, you know what? They are, they are working. Cause we, we test them two months ago. And I was like, he was just mechanical with it. It was like a savant. It was, it's pretty amazing. And it's something that I, I want to aspire to be. Uh, I mean, I don't know. He did 37 years. I don't know if I want to do 37 years. I love the FNY. I, it's the best job in the world. But, you know, maybe I have another 10 years in me and, and I, I call it quits. Um, but uh, that's what I and then I have younger guys now that are going into chauffeur school um, and they're experiencing that stress value, especially even if we're responding to a call at EMS. Because once we respond to a call and it's both engine and truck, the engine leads the way. So now you have that added stress that the truck is following you. And you have to make sure you know where the fuck you're going. Because if you get lost and it delays us, then it fucks our numbers up and it makes us look like a shit company, you know? Um, so that's, there's a lot of external variables involved. And, and what I take from Headspace throughout the day is that uh, just like what you were saying that you do box breathing, once I hear the tones go off, I like to keep myself in a flow state. And then once I look at the address, in my head, I'm like, okay, this is where I have to go. All right. One, two, three, four. Hold for four. Exhale for four. Hold for four. And as I'm turning the rig on, I'm doing this nice and slow. Once I sit down, I wait for the guys to get dressed. Okay. The balls give me the thumbs up. Lights are on and we go. And, and then I take nice long breaths as I'm driving through traffic. Just like that, nice and easy, and I control that so that I'm, I'm nice, calm, cool, and collected. And if we have something where we're going, and it's not like the nine, the 70s. We're not getting fires every day. I'm not going to lie to you. Most of the calls are class threes, nonsense, gas leaks, you know, uh, medical calls. But uh, because people have been home, we have our, 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 um, our job, working jobs have increased, fires have increased. So... Uh, I just like to stay prepared and that's just me. And I kind of want to uh, pay that forward and tell the guys how I do things and hopefully they adapt to it. But it's not being met with uh, open arms, un unfortunately. Well, just one more area you just touched on before we, we move. Sure. Um, something I talk about a lot and I've seen this from my career. When I was in California, 
my station was my station. So I finished up my career in station one, you know, really got to learn the area. And then, um, a couple of departments ago, same thing. I was in the area for a long time. And by the time, as you said, a few years in, a call would come out. You knew exactly where it was. You, you know, you almost, you knew the target hazards. Okay. There's a train coming. Here's going to be my alternate route. And to me, it was absolutely imperative to have that kind of first year knowledge. What I've seen with other departments that the most recent one, I just missed it when they did this, um, is a forced shift, you know, shaking up of crews or a forced rotation of crews because someone with bugles thinks that, you know, that it's a threat to have this cohesive team, which I think is bullshit. You should be proud of a cohesive team. Yeah, that's so how a team will work like a world oil machine. They have to know each other, right? Exactly. So through through your your lens, um, you know, talk to me about the value of, of, of that first due knowledge and, and that cohesive crew and and not moving people around. Well in in my firehouse we have about 30 plus members. We have is a is a double house. So we have an engine and we have a truck. Uh, engine 73, ladder 42. Uh, we're, the engine is actually a decon engine. The truck is a sock support. Just in case some hazmat shit happens, we have all the, the trinkets to be able to help and, and decon everybody. Uh, but being a team, and regardless of the personality differences that happen in the firehouse, the ball breaking, the, the seniority, the who's senior, who's the junior guy, and blah, 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 uh, there is a benefit to having everybody knowing that you could depend the person next to you. Obviously, there are some uh, weird personalities that you're like, oh, listen, we have to watch so-and-so, make sure that, you know, he's doing this and doing that, but that's far and few in between. Um, The way that you know uh, that a team works together in a firehouse is uh, how they drill. And my firehouse is a uh, a huge drilling firehouse. We drill every day. Uh, and we make sure that uh, we touch on subject that has happened or something that somebody experienced that they want to talk about saying, hey, this is what I did here. Uh, right now, the FDY is doing a change to the roof rope. Uh, so that's one of the things that we're, we're, we're training on now, um, whether it's to lower a member down to, to save somebody through a window or to doing a single slide where a member has to tie off and get off the roof. Um, Actually, we just had a, a third alarm uh, last week with a female firefighter from my firehouse. She's in the, and she's in ladder 42. She had the roof and she was cutting the roof because it was a, a top to a fire and it got into the cock loft. She actually burned her arm. She has second degree burns. She needs some, some skin grabs. So that's something that we've been highlighting also in our firehouse and what to do. Thank God she was on air. She had the, the wits and she wasn't like, oh, I don't need air. I'm on the roof. There's free air here. You know, once... Once there's smoke and, you know, you want to be able to proficiently, you know, stay on there and not be coughing and, you know, not have your burgers and, and, uh, and tears come out because of the, the agitation of the smoke. Um, but that, thank God she had her, her mask on. She probably would have burned her face also. Um, and she said she didn't see any flames coming out. So there's probably just the heat from her cutting the, the roof that burned her arms. So those are the things that we... Uh, we sit down and we have a conversation on, at the kitchen table. Say, hey, what happens if we go here? What do you do? What do you do? And then we go hands-on, whether it's firefighter removal or ropes or whatever the case may be. Then we put our hands on stuff and, okay, let's go. Let's see how you go. We use uh, blacked-out face pieces where, you know, you really can't see in front of you. We stretch your holes. Okay, the chief is telling us, get out. 
you know, we turn them around circles and they have to figure out how to get out, you know, things like that. And we're always on air. Uh, we don't want to go too crazy because in case we get a run, we don't want guys to be too exhausted. Um, but we try to do the best we can. And it reflects once we respond to a call, guys know, well, you know, these guys have their shit together. Oh, that's 7342. We're, we're good. Those, those guys are good. So that's the type of uh, rapport and reputation you want to have. For sure. Beautiful. Well, thank you for that perspective because I think that's just another thing that comes up a lot. And I find even one of the most stressful things for me was was floating to a different station and not knowing the first you and getting yeah. to that person. If it's a choking, you don't have the you know the the latitude to to take some wrong strays. You know, that's the difference between someone living and dying. So the more you move people around, the less they're familiar with their first you. There's a first. <laughs> there was a a place in my my uh, first you in Anaheim. That was a dude that tested weather tested products. So you come up with whatever, you know, a new axe and the, okay, I need to know if it's going to endure 10 years of wear and tear. Well, he'll put you through his always crazy machines and he'll tell you, okay, this is good or it's not good. But it was like a mad scientist laboratory and he had, a, um, his girlfriend had a bed in the back of the lab in this industrial area. So the only people that knew that were us, you know? So someone comes in from a different fire. You're not going to know there's a person in the back and it's possible, you know, if God forbid, if you can get to it safely, that you can cut the door in the back and save a human being, you know? So that, to me, that first due knowledge of the actual destination and the target hazards is imperative. And the worst thing, in my opinion, you can do is keep fucking moving people around because you want to quote unquote break up crews and not get them to you know, too cohesive. I mean, to me, the the goal is to have a crew that knows the absolute ins and outs. And as you said, is that crew that shows up, trains together. And when they come on scene, you're like, oh, good. Another asset to the scene. We we have rare instances because of manpower issues where you get somebody out of borough or uh, I'm going to see the chauffeur. So I really don't have to leave my firehouse. But we have a lot of junior guys that are on the back step that have to go to different firehouse to fill a gap uh, and things like that. But um, the only one that's really uncomfortable, I think for me back when I was uh, in the back step, you know, taking details, that's what it's called, is taking a detail, is if you go out of borough because they have different uh, buildings in, in a different borough. So it's a completely different standard operating procedure from what you're used to. So you have to rely on the people at the firehouse to tell you, hey, you know, you have control tonight. This is what the control guy does. And you have to kind of roll with the punches, not knowing like I said, fire doesn't happen every day, so there might be some nights where you don't get anything, and there might be some nights where you go to work and you have to kind of make do with what you have. But the optimal situation is you being home, you being in the back step that you feel comfortable in, and being able to perform and do your job uh, when, when called upon. Absolutely. All right. Well, I want to switch to some closing questions. Sure. So the first one I always ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Boy, I have several books. Um, one is The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. Uh, that's actually in my repertoire uh, when I talk to probies. Uh, I utilize The Four Agreements and make it applicable to the fire academy. You know? um, the other one is The Unbeatable Mind by Mark Devine. Uh, it's a great book. Uh, one where I get all my resources on breathing is called Breathe by Dr. Belisa Branich. Uh, she's a, a breathing expert and, sh and she talks about the breath and how to utilize the breath to be able to center, how to build your pelvic floor and so forth and so on. 
Um, another one, uh, one of my favorites is Extreme, Extreme Ownership by Jacko Willink. Um, that one is by far um, one of my favorites because it allowed me to stop blaming others for my mistakes and taking ownership. Even if you know you're not wrong, if you're a leader and me being a senior guy in my house, if somebody fucks up, that's my fault. I did something wrong, regardless if it's, if it's an individual that did it, but it was his lack of knowledge that did that, and it's my fault that he was unaware of the proper movements to make to make that mistake. So that is one of the things that kind of leads to Extreme Ownership, which is the second book he wrote, um, but that book is awesome. Uh, Can't Hurt Me is another one. Um, David Goggins. A savage of a human being. I don't know the man personally, but I listen to him on the on different podcasts, Joe Rogan's podcast, and he is, and I follow him on social media. He is a, a extraordinary human being. And I I wish to be and have at least a quarter of the uh, uh, cojones that that man has. Um, and the last one I think uh, for now will be the Kelly Star Red uh, becoming a supple leopard. Uh, that one is my go-to. It's like my science textbook. That's how I utilize that book. It's actually the size of a science textbook, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but he, Kelly is a physio, uh, well-known in the CrossFit world. Uh, and uh, he just is a huge advocate for posture and, and proper movements. And um, there's a lot of uh, preemptive uh, movements you could do to avoid injuries. And if you're injured, he gives the recommendations on how to alleviate the injury through the variety of methods he has in that textbook. So it's something that I highly recommend. And I actually created a PDF file for all the probies. Day one of the academy, we give them that uh, and say, hey, one of the prevalent injuries that the probies get in, in probie school is uh, lower back injuries, shoulder pain, neck pain. Um, and that a lot had to do with them being deconditioned and going from zero to 100, not, not training every day to training pretty much five days a week extremely hard and then putting on the equipment it takes a little bit of time the body get used to you know uh 70 74 pounds worth of basic equipment and then another 20 30 pounds of whatever equipment you're carrying depending on whatever position you have so you know moving with a sense of purpose whether it's searching taking a door going up the aerial there's a lot of is, is involved um and there's a lot of uh, injuries the probies get so i utilize kelly's book as an outlet to uh help these probies um uh, prevent injuries and if they get injured how to recover from them smartly beautiful well um mark divine Belissa franich and have been on once uh jocko's been on twice here so people listening read the books listen to the no podcast way. too yeah oh man you know what you have over 400 some episodes and i'm i'm really humbled that i'm having a conversation with you and i'm even in the in the same uh listing as all these individuals i i i've been utilizing their information and kind of preaching it, digesting it, and regurgitating it, and using it myself. I'm the individual, I'm the type of person that I have to practice what I preach. So once I get the information and I'm drawn to it, I have OCD, I have big problems with OCD, and that's another problem that I have where, you know, as you guys already gathered throughout this conversation, my mind goes from one thing to another and to another. I always try to catch up a little bit. Um, but I'm so passionate about this thing that that's why my mind works in that way. And, and uh, to, I haven't met, the only one I've met was um, Belisa. She came to the Fire Academy 
and did a workshop with with the fitness unit. Um, so I, I met her. I've, I've uh, I love what she does. She has a workshop that I'm trying to take advantage of, but unfortunately, my schedule doesn't work with the classes she's offering. But uh, that being said, I, I'm I'm happy for you that you have these individuals there. That's that's pretty awesome. That's kudos to you. Yeah. No. They're, they're, the the funny thing is, there's so many people outside the fire service that have the answer. So that's the thing. When I started this, I didn't want it to be you know, the the FDIC list of people on the show all the time. They're great people, but there are so many others that have, from different professions that have the answers too. So, yeah. Um, so with that same question, what about a film and or a documentary that you love? A film, I can't figure out. I've, full disclosure, I've heard previous discussions you had with uh, other guys. I have digested your podcast. Um, obviously not 400 uh, within a short time frame, but I've heard the question of a film and I cannot find an answer to that. But there is a documentary that I want everybody to see. It's called Exterminate All the Brutes. It's on HBO Max. Uh, the author's name escapes me right now, but it's called Exterminate the Brutes. And it's a, a rude reality on the uh, history of slavery and every other ethnic group Um from the Indians down to African-Americans and what they went through and uh, who conquered them and why and the reasoning through all the quote-unquote conquering and the lesser than humans and things like that. They go through all the science of it and it's it's vexing because it's so sad how people's mindset were. Um, but we can't cry over spilled milk. We could just move forward and not have history re repeat itself. Um, as much as whoever's behind the curtain and putting the strings are trying to do the divide and conquer type thing. But they go through that as well uh, in this documentary. I think it's a six-part series on HBO uh, Max. And you guys, uh, I highly recommend that 100%. Beautiful. I'm going to have to watch that. It's something that, that has come up recently. I was... You know, the, the, I've learned an incredible amount this last four and a half years, you know, and spoken to some amazing people, um, re read so much because I'm preparing for interviews, you know, so I read so many people's books. But, you know, the, the underlying issue I think that we see with so many of the negative things, whether it's our prison swelling, whether it's drug, you know, prohibition, whether it's slavery, is that when you boil it down, it becomes you know, greed and power. That's it. It's really the fundamental. So with this, with the, the racism thing today, when you look at slavery, that if you look at America back when that was happening and in the UK, actually, England was going through one of its poorest times at the height of slavery. And we, you know, I learned this at the Charleston Slave Museum. The way the British kept their hands clean is they would go and, you know, trade slaves, come to the US, trade that for cotton or tobacco or whatever, and then take that back. Well, I don't know what you're talking about. I just bought cigarettes, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But yeah. what's crazy is you think about it, most of the people in the UK, most of the people in the US had no idea that was going on. Unless you had plantations or, you know, whatever, unless you were one of these small amounts of people that were gaining by making human beings work for free, the Ray, John the blacksmith in Wisconsin had no fucking idea that that was going on, you know? So that's what's so, um, frustrating now is that the root of this wasn't all white people, all this or all that, but it was hate and greed. And we're still seeing hate and greed today. That is what's behind pulling the puppet strings. That's why there's McDonald's and Cokes in our, in our fucking high schools and the local farmers can't get their fresh produce in for love nor money. 
So, you know, I'm, I'm really, really excited to see that because to, to, to educate me further to see, am I deluded or again, is ultimately greed and power behind so many of this divisive hatred that we've seen in our history? And you have, yeah, you'll, you'll see it. And I, I actually, in my older age, I've become very sensitive to things. And that, that, that documentary actually made me, made me cry. And I was like, holy cow, made me angry at the same time. And I, I really couldn't, I mean, and especially with what's going on now and, and they're making it racial and things like that. And, you know, me being Hispanic and, uh, and, you know, living in the Bronx and, and, and digesting stuff. And I just try to be an, an advocate for positivity. And when I had the platform in the fitness unit and I saw that I had a influence on, even if it's just for the future of the FDNY, even if it's just a small population of 300 every four or five months, I wanted to make sure what I read that made me so passionate, I'm able to practice it every day and then pay it forward by teaching others with the platform that I have. And, uh, that's what I'm still trying to do. And now that I'm a senior guy in my firehouse, I'm still trying to do that as well. And not to discredit my senior guys, but what a lot of them used to do is just yell at you. Like if they, they were your dad and they were like a drunken dad just yelling at you and you did this wrong, you fucking idiot, you dummy, you know, you're a piece of shit, you're a loser, blah, blah, blah. I talk to my members as adults and human beings. You guys are all in your 20s and your 30s. I should not be yelling at you. You know what you did wrong. Let's have a conversation. What did you do? Why are guys breaking your balls? Okay, well, let's try doing it this way. This is what we normally do. And I understand that we're in new times and you guys are, are, are adapting and, and learning differently. But this is how things have been done. Let's hear your perspective. Why you did things this way. All right, cool. Well, let's try it this way next time. And then if you want to go back to your way, that's cool. But you saw that doing it your way has everybody hating you or have you on the on the shutter or whatever the case may be having people posting pictures of you now we have chat rooms so there's there's pictures and stuff going on chat rooms whatever situation but having an adult conversation i think it 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 makes people gravitate to you more than yelling and berating people and that's how i learn if you yell at me i'm like Oh man, I guess this guy want to fight. He doesn't understand my background, you know. And and that's one of the issues I had as as a young guy in my firehouse, where guys were yelling, and I had to turn the cheek and turn the other cheek, and I'll turn an ass cheek and turn the other <laughs> cheeks, you know. It's like, all right, so then this this is personal, right? You wanna you wanna go downstairs? You wanna go across the street? Let's we can make this happen, you know. It it is what it is. I'm technically from the streets, you know. I I could I could uh channel back into that that demon, you know, but. That's what I'm trying to do and, and, and reading these individuals' books and, and being a, a force for difference uh, in a positive way is what I aspire and what I'm con- going to continue to do with my time with the FDNY and my time on Earth. I have a little guy, uh, 16 months, I'm going to try to make him the best human uh, possible uh, through what I've been through and not be like me because I've done a lot of dumb shit in my life, you know? Well, you said uh, senior man, one of the most amazing people have had on here yet with the experience that he has yet the humility was al benjamin fdmy rescue one really yeah so uh, everyone if you want to hear what a, what a senior man should sound like listen to that one because he just such a nice bloke and you know again no need to raise his voice whatever and and it was that mentorship 
And it was almost kind of like that extreme ownership. Oh, this, you know, this rookie doesn't know what he's doing. Well, I can shout, you know, and belittle him, or I can take it upon myself as owning the path and helping him gain the skills that he needs. So, yeah, I agree 100%. Yeah, that's awesome. I got to, oh man, I, I've been digesting Joe Rogan. I've, I've been listening to him every episode and I still back, I'm still in March of, of this year. So I haven't even caught up to where he is, but I'm going to have to add your podcast from day one and, and start digesting that as well. And when I go on my long runs or my long bike rides, I like to throw on a podcast and get lost. And when I'm stuck in traffic, that's what I do to zone out. So uh, I'm definitely going to find those i'm gonna just go from day one and try to make make my way down and see how far <laughs> there's some amazing people on there um yeah, so next question is there a person you'd recommend to come on this show as a guest to speak to the first responders military and associated professions of the world wow oh boy um Boy, if you could get David Goggins, that'd be a fucking treat, man. He was that'd supposed be- to be coming on, and then right that year, because I mean, they literally told me where well, he's only going to do, um, I think it was like five that year, and this was one of them because he's a wildland firefighter now too. Yeah. But then I think he, he must have hit some sort of wall um, where he was like, "Fuck it, I'm not doing any for a while." So he is on hold, but I'm still in communication with him. So hopefully, when he's when he's back out again. You know he'll he'll be coming on, but yeah. So he's he's definitely kind of holding pattern for now. Well, okay. So then there is one guy. Um, he was my uh, he was my boss for the fitness unit um, from 2015. Uh, Captain Tom Tanzosh. I could put you in contact with him. Whether he'll do it, I'm not sure. But he has a unique perspective of starting the fitness unit from scratch. It was his show. He did an extraordinary uh, revamp of the training and the success of the training. Obviously, it takes more than one individual. It takes a whole group. And and the success of the fitness unit has been, uh, at least the last six years, has been extraordinary um, in in being uh, helping uh, 3,000-some-odd probies uh, successfully pass the academy. But like I was mentioning before, we have a lot of people that come in deconditioned and it's up to us to stop uh, crying over spilled milk. They're already here. The jobs, doctors allowed them to come in. They've already passed all the red tape. So let's try to build them up as best as possible to get to, to graduate the academy. And he, year in and year out, uh, is uh, was a forefront and the leader of that movement. And uh, if you could get him on so you could share his unique perspective, that would be awesome. That would, yeah. Let's 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 try. I mean, hopefully, I, if, I will call him right now after this and let him know. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> tell him. Tell him. Al and some of those guys have been on too. Actually, I've got um, Doug Mitchell coming on soon as well. No way. Yeah. So that's another rock name. He's a Bronx gentleman. No way. You got holy shit. Good for you, man. I, I, he's he's actually one of the instructors with me with the MPI. He, uh, we we do we um, at the Rock with the Probies. We do uh, MPI stuff. Beautiful, yeah. Him and Dan, they're both of them together, and they come on. So, oh, good. yeah, so wow. that'll be a good one. Twenty-five alive. Yes. Beautiful. That's awesome, man. Cool. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure people know how to reach you if they want to, you know, follow you, you know, um, reach out to you. What do you do to decompress these days? You touched on, you know, breath work already. Are there any other areas? Yes. So there is this company that I follow. Uh, they have an app or they go website. It's called Ramwad. 
Uh, Range of Motion, Workout of the Day, R-O-M-W-O-D.com. I've been using them every day. Uh, some days I miss, depending on my schedule, things like that, but I've been as consistent as possible. I'll actually get made fun of by my uh, co-workers in the fitness unit because we do some extreme workouts, but it takes me 40 minutes to warm up uh, before these workouts. And I call it my old man stretches. And the first thing, the first 20 minutes, I do ROMWAD and I start moving, priming my body for the ridiculous workouts that we do. It lasts almost two hours and we're doing some craziness. Um, but ROMWAD and Headspace are the two hands down that I do every day to... Uh, decompress and uh, get me pr- either decompress from the day or get me ready for the day. Um, that's and besides jujitsu and working out, it kind of tames the beast, so I could be more uh, approachable. Because I have a resting bitch face that most people say that you know he's not, and you know I'm a big guy, so everybody thinks I'm not approachable. So I kind of have to uh, relax my resting bitch face. I've learned throughout the years not to have that and be. Through the breathing and the stretching, uh, it, it keeps me calm, cool, and collected so that I am that individual that guys want to go to to have a conversation with as opposed to, oh, that guy looks mean. I don't want to talk to him type deal, you know? Beautiful. All right. Well, then one, I'm going to touch on one thing before we go to, to where people can find you. Um, which companies do you use for your equipment? Because I just came across a, a, a company that I've known for a little bit, but um, they... Their stuff is absolutely amazing, and and what really blows me away is it can be it can sit outside like their their barbells everything. It was designed for the military initially, so it's on battleships on their decks. It's out in the deserts in the Middle East. Um, you know what what kind of uh, where have you shopped before this? For me personally, or at at the Rock? Um, I say at the Rock. Yeah. Well, well, the equipment we get at the Rock is mainly is mainly from Rogue, so. What we do in the fitness unit, uh, obviously, we're not a non-for-profit, and, and pretty much everything comes out of pocket. So what we do is that we sell Gatorade to the, the probies. Um, you know, we sell them at $2 or like two Gatorades for $3 or something like that, $1.50. Uh, but that's where we make the most of our – we have also um, power bars and things like that that we sell. So that money goes to the gym fund. We also sell T-shirts, which I have to get your information. I want to send you a nice little package after this, uh, get you some, some T-shirts and hats and stuff. But – uh, we sell T-shirts to the to the guys, and and uh, all that money goes to a fund. And guys that come in and work overtime uh, for in the fitness unit for the day, they you know pay a certain amount of money, and that all goes to the to the uh, equipment fund. And we just go to Rogue. Rogue is where we go mostly. But I could get the information from this because what actually I wanted to touch upon that because you mentioned before, do you do any strongman stuff at the academy? See how I come back to it. We do, but unfortunately, because of the lack of preparedness that most probies come in, we have to first train them for a few weeks to build a certain capacity before we can start doing strongman stuff. Because we go straight to strongman stuff and they don't have the proper movements or uh, they're not strong enough or have the aerobic capacity, they could get hurt. So we have to first start with the baby stuff and build them up and build them up and build them up and then we can start doing strongman stuff. So for the strongman stuff, we do like sleds, we have a yoke. Uh, we have battle ropes. We have a, um, a D ball, which is like a hundred pound, fifty pound D ball. Um, uh, what else? Dummy drags, things like that. That we do. We have the fat bar uh, uh, dumbbells that we uh, barbells that we use also for for grip strength. Because a lot of the work in the in the uh, fire department is a lot of grip grip dependent. So we kind of build their grip. Uh, big 
heavy kettlebells for farmers carries. So we build stations like that. We do three minutes on, uh, two minutes off, and then we have them rotate and we put them in groups of 10 and 15. Because you have to look at it in a class of 300 uh, per day, per schedule, the most we'll get is 75. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the least we'll get is 75 students. The most we'll get is 180 at a time. Um, so we have very limited space at the Rock, like I was mentioning before. So we have to play with what we have. So a lot of it is, uh, is all body weight stuff. And then sometimes when we get fancy before they graduate, we start doing some strong mass stuff. But we're very limited on space. But all the equipment, to get back to your question, all the equipment that we get, we get from Rogue. Um, not at a discount. Rogue don't give two shits about the FDNY. They, they say, maybe we could give you 10% off shipping. But I was like, you know what? For that, I'll just pay full price. Who cares? Well, and that's that's why I want to put it out there. Not bashing any other company, but... So they were start Beaver Fit was started in the UK by a guy who passed SAS selection, so he's special force selection. He ended up going back to his family business, which was bridge building. So they were steel workers. Um, very long story short, was an athlete himself, built himself a rig in kind of early CrossFit days. Um, and then the uh, SAS and some of the you know British special forces said, "Hey, can you build us some stuff?" So he started building it. Now he equips. Pretty much, you know, most of the the uh, military forces out in the UK and some of the other first responders, well, two Navy Riverines over here, um, basically st- uh, stood up the American side. Um, it's staffed mostly by veterans, and again, all their equipment is designed to be outside, including the, if you look at the new army test with the, the hex bar deadlifts and, you know, all that, that's all beaver fit equipment. So my thing, and they're also very altruistic, so they do do a lot with you know, charitable organizations. So they understand the tactical space. So it's not talking bad about other companies. I just want to find a company that gets us, that truly understands, you know, a lot of us can't have stuff. We don't have a gym and a station. They have like a, like a foot locker that opens up into a full pull-up bar, squat rack, and, um, you know, step. They have, um, you know, varying size, uh, storage containers that has all the gym stuff in, inside and you can have a whole bunch of racks on the outside. So they have solutions. So I always could just, just plant the seed. Just, you know, tell people to go and look them up. I mean, th- there is a discount code, um, because we're partnering at the moment, but my, I, I just want to take away the excuses again of, of the strength conditioning. Oh, we don't have the space. Oh, we can't have workout equipment in the bay. Well, now you can. So. Yeah. Problem solved. <laughs> you, you had him on the podcast, right? I, I, yes. I think I see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I think that's on my on my queue. Uh, I'm definitely going to listen to it. I definitely are uh, going to use that. I have uh, some influence still in the fitness unit. I'm one of the senior guys there as well. Uh, and uh, we all sit down once the class ends and, and uh, look at the gym, see what kind of equipment we need. But it will be some dope stuff to have some stuff outside that we could do. That, I'm definitely going to look into that. Thank you for that recommendation. I appreciate that. No worries, mate. Well, the final thing then. So where can people, you know, learn more about you? How can they follow you on social media or reach out to you? Well, I neglected to mention that I, uh, since I joined the fitness unit, I saw how unprepared people were for the academy. The one thing I did not want to do is double dip and be like, well, you know, I'm an instructor at the fitness unit. Come Google me. You could get trained by a fitness unit guy from the FDNY because that's kind of frowned upon. So I created this um, training methodology. It's called Mata Fuego training. Mata Fuego means fire killer in, uh, in Spanish and training. And um, 
I started that in early 2016, but it didn't come to fruition until 2017. And uh, I had a friend of mine that had a gym in the Bronx. It was called CrossFit La Caja. Now it's, it's Opex Riverdale. And that was my home for a little while. I was a full-time coach, strength and conditioning coach there. I was training candidates. I've trained in the last, since 2017, about 150 candidates. Not a lot, but on the grand scheme of things, that, that is a lot of candidates. They all successfully passed the academy uh, through my training. And, and uh, I've since been a mentor to many. Um, but you can find me there uh, at Mata Fuego Training. Mata, M-A-T-A underscore Fuego, F-U... E-G-O underscore training. Uh, my personal coach, uh, my personal uh, IG page is uh, Coach Manharris, so Coach underscore Manharris, M-A-N-J-A-R-R-E-Z. And then I have another one on Instagram that used to be my personal one that separated my coach from my Matafogo training. But now that one is just for my kid. I, every post I have is for my little guy and all the amazing stuff he's been doing. If you want to follow that, that's cool. That's Philly Fell, P-H-I-L-L-I-E-F-E-L um, uh, at uh, Instagram. Uh, I'm also on Facebook, just Felix Manharris on Facebook. Um, Mata Fuego Training is also on Facebook. I don't really mess with Twitter. I hate the, the negative uh, space that Twitter has. Um, and uh, I just try to keep everything positive on my page. I used to be a Judge Judy and kind of judge a lot of the coaches throughout COVID and then doing home training stuff and things like that. But I've since um, stopped hating on people and just let people kind of, if they want to find me, uh, they can find me. And uh, I'll be able to help them with whatever information or whatever goals they have. I'll be able to help them with that. And that's where I'm at now. Beautiful. Well, one last thing before we close sure. out. Um, obviously, we're approaching the 20th anniversary of uh, 9-11. So... What a, as as a an agency, what are you guys um, you know preparing, and what are you expecting for that event? Very good question, which requires a semi long story. So my firehouse uh, back in 1999, my firehouse was uh, condemned. It was a really uh, bombed out firehouse, to say the least. There was holes on the apparatus floor. There was mice and. And and uh, rats and and roaches everywhere. I wasn't there. I got I got on in 2005, so I really didn't see that madness. But my firehouse was shut down, and the city uh, built it up from scratch. Uh, that's why my firehouse was called La Casa Caca, which in from Spanish <laughs> name, it's the, the shit house. And we use Oscar the Grouch as our our logo. Um, within, a, I'll send you our logo and things like that so you Please. can see. <laughs> and um, the truck is called La Casa de Elefantes, the, 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 the elephant house. Because back in the day, uh, in the 60s and 70s, there used to be like 300 plus pounds, six foot five guys. So because we're in a predominantly Spanish neighborhood, guys would be like, oh, look at the, the elephants are coming. The elefantes vienen ahí. Um, and then we had a sense remove La Casa Caca from our rig because people thought we were talking about the neighborhood. They were saying that the neighborhood is shit, but we were saying, no, 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 it's our firehouse that shit, it's not the neighborhood. We're living in filth. Not the, even though the neighborhood was a little shitty, we gotta keep it real, but there was some turmoil there and and, and uh, FEY media got involved, so we had to remove that from our, our rig, but we still have the logo of Oscar the Grouch and a little tiny, like Asakaka there, that's, uh, it's been around. We're actually a landmark. Anyway, long story. 1999, the firehouse was closed. It opened back up September 10th, 2001. It was a grand opening of the firehouse. 
big deal. The, the mayor came, Giuliani was there. They had a ticket tape parade. You know, it was a big thing in the job. The house opened up. The next morning, 9-11 happens. We lost four guys from our firehouse um, that day. And um, every year since, we've had a mass at our firehouse on the 10th. The, 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 the priest that was at our eulogy on September 10th, 2001, his father, Judge, that was his last mass because he actually died on, on, and when the towers came down. So we have a big quote from him. We're actually making a, a T-shirt for the 20-year anniversary with his image on there. Um, this year is going to be big. We get firefighters from everywhere, from France, from Germany, from different uh, states and, and different cities. Uh, and uh, it's a big thing in our firehouse. And it's been going on since uh, September 10th of, of uh, 2001. And this year is going to be the big one um, to 20 years. So that's how we do every year. Every firehouse has their own way of remembering and, and, uh, and um, I guess, yeah, remembering is the best way. I don't want to say uh, celebrate because it really isn't a celebration, but every firehouse has their own way of remembering from masses to, you know, picnics and things like that. So for 73 42, our, our event of September 10th is going to be a big one. We have retired members come in. We read everybody's name, especially uh, uh, those that, that pass in um, just through fires or, or and through 9-11. So it's a, it's a big thing. We get the local priest to come in. We do a mass, and then we have food for everybody and, and things like that. Beautiful. Well, I'm glad I asked that. And you, you talked about Father Judge. I had um, another one for you to look out for, Jules and Gédéon Naudet, the, the two French brothers that made the, the film 9-11. And, oh, nice! Yeah, and one of them was actually with Father Judge when he passed. So you know, they, oh wow, because they had they caught it on film, which was you know obviously tragic. But um, yeah, so I mean that's uh, you know another poignant episode related to that. Wow, man, you got some gems, man! I can't wait. <laughs> awesome. So anyway, well, Felix, I want to say thank you so much. This, this conversation has not only gone all over the place, which I love. I'm a huge fan of tangents and, you know, and then kind of going off the path a little bit. Um, but, you know, you also delivered some hard truths and that's what we need to hear. There's a lot of pussyfooting around topics that results in more coffins. And it, you know, just here in, in this local area, as I said uh, earlier, you know, we've had, you know, suicides. We've had people die from cancer. We've had, you know, all kinds of tragedies. I mean, that poor firefighter that, that his daughter was killed in that, that collapse in Miami and he had to retrieve the body. I mean, just, just so much tragedy, but it's so important that our bar is held high and it's so important that we find the right people in all communities and we raise them up to the level that they should be at, not drop a bar down to fill, you know, to check boxes. So I want to thank you so much for taking the time. I think we spoke well over three hours in the end. For everyone listening, we chopped it up into two, but but yeah, so thank you so much. Yeah, I, I am humbled. Uh, I'm grateful for those that made this happen and I'm grateful for you to wanting to spend time. Um, thank you for appeasing my tangents and going all over the place. Hopefully people don't get too annoyed, but this is how I am and this is how my thought process is. And hopefully I delivered a message that uh, would, uh, would ring bells later on, you know?